BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 23 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines Which contains the substance of a pleasant conversation between Mr. Bumble and a lady, and shows that even a beadle may be susceptible on some points. The night was bitter cold. The snow lay on the ground, frozen into a hard, thick crust, so that only the heaps that had drifted into byways and corners were affected by the sharp wind that howled abroad, which, as if expending increased fury on such prey as it found, caught it savagely up in clouds, and whirling it into a thousand misty eddies, scattered it in air. Bleak, dark, and piercing cold, it was a night for the well-housed and fed to draw round the bright fire and thank God they were at home, and for the homeless, starving wretch to lay himself down and die. Many hunger-worn outcasts close their eyes in our bare streets at such times, who, let their crimes have been what they may, can hardly open them in a more bitter world. Such was the aspect of out-of-doors affairs when Mrs. Corney, the matron of the workhouse to which our readers have been already introduced as the birthplace of Oliver Twist, sat herself down before a cheerful fire in her own little room, and glanced, with no small degree of complacency, at a small round table, on which stood a tray of corresponding size furnished with all necessary materials for the most grateful meal that matrons enjoy. In fact, Mrs. Corney was about to solace herself with a cup of tea. As she glanced from the table to the fireplace, where the smallest of all possible kettles was singing a small song in a small voice, her inward satisfaction evidently increased, so much so, indeed, that Mrs. Corney smiled. "'Well,' said the matron, leaning her elbow on the table and looking reflectively at the fire, I'm sure we have all on us a great deal to be grateful for, a great deal, if we did but know it. Ah! Mrs. Corney shook her head mournfully, as if deploring the mental blindness of those paupers who did not know it, and thrusting a silver spoon, private property, into the inmost recesses of a two-ounce tin tea-caddy, proceeded to make the tea. How slight a thing will disturb the equanimity of our frail minds, the black teapot being very small and easily filled ran over while Mrs. Corney was moralising, and the water slightly scalded Mrs. Corney's hand. "'Drat the pot,' said the worthy matron, setting it down very hastily on the hob. "'A little stupid thing that only holds a couple of cups. What use is it to anybody?' "'Except,' said Mrs. Corney, pausing, "'except to a poor desolate creature like me. Oh, dear!' With these words the matron dropped into her chair, and once more resting her elbow on the table, 
thought of her solitary fate. The small teapot and the single cup had awakened in her mind sad recollections of Mr. Corney, who had not been dead more than five-and-twenty years, and she was overpowered. "'I shall never get another,' said Mrs. Corney pettishly. "'I shall never get another like him.' Whether this remark bore reference to her husband or the teapot is uncertain. It might have been the latter, for Mrs. Corney looked at it as she spoke, and took it up afterwards. She had just tasted her first cup when she was disturbed by a soft tap at the room door. "'Oh, come in with you,' said Mrs. Corney sharply. "'Some of the old women dying, I suppose. They always die when I'm at meals. Don't stand there letting the cold air in, don't. What's amiss now, hey?' "'Nothing, ma'am, nothing,' replied a man's voice. "'Dear me!' exclaimed the matron in a much sweeter tone. "'Is that Mr. Bumble?' "'At your service, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble, who had been stopping outside to rub his shoes clean, and to shake the snow off his coat, and who now made his appearance bearing the cocked hat in one hand and a bundle in the other. "'Shall I shut the door, ma'am?' The lady modestly hesitated to reply, lest there should be any impropriety in holding an interview with Mr. Bumble with closed doors. Mr. Bumble, taking advantage of the hesitation, and being very cold himself, shut it without permission. "'Hard weather, Mr. Bumble,' said the matron. "'Hard indeed, ma'am,' replied the beadle. "'Antiparochial weather this, ma'am. We have given away, Mrs. Corney, we have given away a matter of twenty quartern loaves and a cheese and a half this very blessed afternoon, and yet them paupers are not contented.' "'Of course not.' "'When would they be, Mr. Bumble?' said the matron, sipping her tea. "'When indeed, ma'am,' rejoined Mr. Bumble. "'Why, there's one man that, in consideration of his wife and large family, has a quarter loaf and a good pound of cheese, full weight. Is he grateful, ma'am? Is he grateful? Not a copper farthing worth of it. Now what does he do, ma'am, but ask for a few coals? If it's only a pocket-handkerchief full, he says. Coals! What would he do with coals?' toast his cheese with them and then come back for more that's the way with these people ma'am give em an apron full of coals to-day and they'll come back for another the day after to-morrow as brazen as alabaster the matron expressed her entire concurrence in this intelligible simile and the beadle went on i never said mr bumble see anything like the pitch it's got to the day before yesterday a man-you have been a married woman ma'am and i may mention it to you-a man with hardly a rag upon his back here Mrs. Corney looked at the floor. "'Goes to our overseer's door when he has got company coming to dinner, and says he must be relieved, Mrs. Corney. As he wouldn't go away and shock the company very much, our overseer sent him out a pound of potatoes and a half pint of oatmeal. "'My heart,' says the ungrateful villain, "'what's the use of this to me? You might as well give me a pair of iron spectacles.' "'Very good,' says our overseer, taking them away again. "'You won't get anything else here.' Well, then I'll die on the street,' said the vagrant. "'No, no, you won't,' says our overseer. Ah, "'That was very good. So like Mr. Granite, wasn't it?' interposed the matron. "'Well, Mr. Bumble?' "'Well, ma'am,' rejoined the beadle. "'He went away, and he did die in the streets. There's an obstinate pauper for you.' "'It beats anything I could have believed,' observed the matron emphatically. "'But don't you think out-of-door relief a very bad thing, anyway, Mr. Bumble? You're a gentleman of experience, and ought to know. Come.' 
Mrs. Corney, said the beadle, smiling as men smile who are conscious of superior information, out-of-door relief, properly managed, uh, properly managed, ma'am, is the parochial safeguard. The great principle of out-of-door relief is to give the paupers exactly what they don't want, and then they get tired of coming. Dear me, exclaimed Mrs. Corney, well, that is a good one, too. Yes, betwixt you and me, ma'am, returned Mr. Bumble, that's the great principle, and that's the reason why, if you look at any cases that gets into them audacious newspapers, you'll always observe that sick families have been relieved with slices of cheese. That's the rule now, Mrs. Corney, all over the country. But, however, said the beadle, stopping to unpack his bundle, these are official secrets, ma'am, not to be spoken of, except, as I may say, among the parochial officers such as ourselves. This is the port wine, ma'am, that the board ordered for the infirmary, a real, fresh, genuine port wine, only out of the cask this afternoon, clear as a bell, and no sediment. Having held the first bottle up to the light and shaken it well to test its excellence, Mr. Bumble placed them both on top of a chest of drawers, folded the handkerchief in which they had been wrapped, put it carefully in his pocket, and took up his hat as if to go. "'You'll have a very cold walk, Mr. Bumble,' said the matron. "'It blows, ma'am,' replied Mr. Bumble, turning up his coat-collar, "'enough to cut one's ears off.' The matron looked from the little kettle to the beadle, who was moving towards the door, and as the beadle coughed, preparatory to bidding her good-night, bashfully inquired whether—whether he wouldn't take a cup of tea. Mr. Bumble instantaneously turned back his collar again, laid his hat and stick upon a chair, and drew another chair up to the table. As he slowly seated himself, he looked at the lady. She fixed her eyes upon the little teapot. Mr. Bumble coughed again and slightly smiled. Mrs. Corney rose to get another cup and saucer from the closet. As she sat down, her eyes once again encountered those of the gallant beadle. She coloured and applied herself to the task of making his tea. Again Mr. Bumble coughed, louder this time than he had coughed yet. "'Sweet, Mr. Bumble?' inquired the matron, taking up the sugar-basin. "'Very sweet indeed, ma'am,' replied Mr. Bumble. He fixed his eyes upon Mrs. Corney as he said this, and if ever a beadle looked tender, Mr. Bumble was that beadle at that moment. The tea was made and handed in silence, Mr. Bumble having spread a handkerchief over his knees to prevent the crumb from sullying the splendour of his shorts, began to eat and drink, varying these amusements occasionally by fetching a deep sigh, which, however, had no injurious effect upon his appetite, but on the contrary rather seemed to facilitate his operations in the tea and toast department. "'You have a cat, ma'am, I see said Mr. Bumble, glancing at one who, in the centre of her family, was basking before the fire. "'And kittens, too, I declare.' "'I am so fond of them, Mr. Bumble, you can't think,' replied the matron. "'They're so happy, so frolicsome, and so cheerful that they are quite companions for me.' "'Very nice animals, ma'am,' replied Mr. Bumble approvingly. "'So very domestic.' "'Oh, yes.' rejoined the matron with enthusiasm, so fond of their home, too, that it's quite a pleasure, I'm sure. Mrs. Corney, ma'am, said Mr. Bumble slowly, and marking the time with his teaspoon, I mean to say this, ma'am, that any cat or kitten that could live with you, ma'am, and not be fond of his home, must be a ass, ma'am. Oh, Mr. Bumble, remonstrated Mrs. Corney. 
"'It's of no use disguising facts, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble, slowly flourishing the teaspoon with a kind of amorous dignity which made him doubly impressive. "'I would drown it myself with pleasure.' "'Then you're a cruel man,' said the matron vivaciously, as she held out her hand for the beadle's cup, "'and a very hard-hearted man besides.' "'Hard-hearted, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble. "'Hard!' Mr. Bumble resigned his cup without another word, squeezed Mrs. Corney's little finger as she took it, and, inflicting two open-handed slaps upon his laced waistcoat, gave a mighty sigh, and hitched his chair a very little morsel farther from the fire. It was a round table, and as Mrs. Corney and Mr. Bumble had been sitting opposite each other, with no great space between them and fronting the fire, it will be seen that Mr. Bumble, in receding from the fire, and still keeping at the table, increased the distance between himself and Mrs. Corney, which proceeding some prudent readers will doubtless be disposed to admire, and to consider an act of great heroism on Mr. Bumble's part, he being in some sort tempted by time, place, and opportunity to give utterance to certain soft nothings which, however well they may become the lips of the light and thoughtless, do seem immeasurably beneath the dignity of judges of the land, members of Parliament, ministers of State, Lord Mayors, and other great public functionaries, but more particularly beneath the stateliness and gravity of a beadle, who, as is well known, should be the sternest and most inflexible among them all. Whatever were Mr. Bumble's intentions, however, and no doubt they were of the best, it unfortunately happened, as has been twice before remarked, that the table was a round one. Consequently, Mr. Bumble, moving his chair by little and little, soon began to diminish the distance between himself and the matron, and, continuing to travel round the outer edge of the circle, brought his chair in time close to that in which the matron was seated. Indeed, the two chairs touched, and when they did so, Mr. Bumble stopped. Now, if the matron had moved her chair to the right, she would have been scorched by the fire, and if to the left, she must have fallen into Mr. Bumble's arms. So, being a discreet matron, and no doubt foreseeing these consequences at a glance, she remained where she was, and handed Mr. Bumble another cup of tea. "'Hard-hearted, Mrs. Corney,' said Mr. Bumble, stirring his tea, and looking up into the matron's face. "'Are you hard-hearted, Mrs. Corney?' "'Dear me!' exclaimed the matron. What a very curious question from a single man! What can you want to know for Mr. Bumble?" The beadle drank his tea to the last drop, finished a piece of toast, whisked the crumbs off his knees, wiped his lips, and deliberately kissed the matron. "'Mr. Bumble!' cried that discreet lady in a whisper, for the fright was so great that she had quite lost her voice. "'Mr. Bumble! I shall scream!' Mr. Bumble made no reply but in a slow and dignified manner put his arm round the matron's waist. As the lady had stated her intention of screaming, of course she would have screamed at this additional boldness, but that the exertion was rendered unnecessary by a hasty knocking at the door, which was no sooner heard than Mr. Bumble darted with much agility to the wine-bottles and began dusting them with great violence, while the matron sharply demanded who was there. It is worthy of remark, as a curious physical instance of the efficacy of a sudden surprise in counteracting the effects of extreme fear, that her voice had quite recovered all its official asperity. "'If you please, mistress,' said the withered old female pauper, hideously ugly, putting her head in at the door, "'Old Sally is a-goin' fast.' "'Well, what's that to me?' angrily demanded the matron. "'I can't keep her alive, can I?' "'No.' "'No, mistress,' replied the old woman. 
Nobody can. She's far beyond the reach of help. I've seen a many people die, little babies and great strong men, and I know when death's a-coming well enough. But she's troubled in her mind, and when the fits are not on her, and that's not often, for she's dying very hard, she says she has got something to tell, which you must hear. She'll never die quiet till you come, mistress. At this intelligence the worthy Mrs. Corney muttered a variety of invectives against old women who couldn't even die without purposely annoying their betters, and, muffling herself in a thick shawl which she hastily caught up, briefly requested Mr. Bumble to stay till she came back, lest anything particular should occur. Bidding the messenger walk fast and not be all night hobbling up the stairs, she followed her from the room with a very ill grace, scolding all the way. Mr. Bumble's conduct on being left to himself was rather inexplicable. He opened the closet, counted the teaspoons, weighed the sugar-tongs, closely inspected a silver milk-pot to ascertain that it was of the genuine metal, and, having satisfied his curiosity on these points, put on his cocked hat corner-wise, and danced with much gravity four distinct times round the table. Having gone through this very extraordinary performance, he took off the cocked hat again, and, spreading himself before the fire with his back towards it, seemed to be mentally engaged in taking an exact inventory of the furniture. End of chapter 23Recording by Tide Hines. Treats on a very poor subject, but is a short one and may be found of importance in this history. It was no unfit messenger of death who had disturbed the quiet of the matron's room. Her body was bent by age, her limbs trembled with palsy, her face distorted into a mumbling leer, resembled more the grotesque shaping of some wild pencil than the work of nature's hand. Alas, how few of nature's faces are left alone to gladden us with their beauty! The cares and sorrows and hungerings of the world change them as they change hearts, and it is only when those passions sleep and have lost their hold for ever that the troubled clouds pass off and leave heaven's surface clear. It is a common thing for the countenances of the dead, even in that fixed and rigid state, to subside into the long-forgotten expression of sleeping infancy and settle into the very look of early life. So calm, so peaceful do they grow again, that those who knew them in their happy childhood kneel by the coffin-side in awe and see the angel even upon earth. The old crone tottered along the passages and up the stairs, muttering some indistinct answers to the chidings of her companion. Being at length compelled to pause for breath, she gave the light into her hand, and remained behind to follow as she might while the more nimble superior made her way to the room where the sick woman lay. It was a bare garret-room, with a dim light burning at the farther end. There was another old woman watching by the bed, the parish apothecary's apprentice was standing by the fire, making a toothpick out of a quill. "'Cold night, Mrs. Corney,' said this young gentleman as the matron entered. "'Very cold indeed, sir,' replied the mistress in her most civil tones, and dropping a curtsey as she spoke. "'You should get better coals out of your contractors,' said the apothecary's deputy, breaking a lump on the top of the fire with a rusty poker. Oh, "'These are not at all the sort of thing for a cold night.' "'They are the board's choosing, sir,' returned the matron. "'The least they could do would be to keep us pretty warm, for our places are hard enough.' 
The conversation was here interrupted by a moan from the sick woman. "'No,' said the young man, turning his face towards the bed as if he had previously quite forgotten the patient. "'It's all U.P. there, Mrs. Corney.' "'It is, is it, sir?' asked the matron. "'If she lasts a couple of hours I shall be surprised,' said the apothecary's apprentice, intent upon the toothpick's point. "'It's a break-up of the system altogether. Is she dowsing, old lady?' The attendant stooped over the bed to ascertain, and nodded in the affirmative. "'Then perhaps you'll go off in that way if you don't make a row,' said the young man. "'Put the light on the floor. She won't see it there.' The attendant did as she was told, shaking her head meanwhile, to intimate that the woman would not die so easily. Having done so, she resumed her seat by the side of the other nurse, who had by this time returned. The mistress, with an expression of impatience, wrapped herself in her shawl and sat at the foot of the bed. The apothecary's apprentice, having completed the manufacture of the toothpick, planted himself in front of the fire and made good use of it for ten minutes or so, when, apparently growing rather dull, he wished Mrs. Corney joy of her job and took himself off on tiptoe. When they had sat in silence for some time the two old women rose from the bed and crouching over the fire held out their withered hands to catch the heat. The flame threw a ghastly light on their shrivelled faces, and made their ugliness appear terrible, as in this position they began to converse in a low voice. "'Did she say any more, Annie, dear, while I was gone?' inquired the messenger. "'Not a word,' replied the other. "'She plucked and tore at her arms for a little time, but I held her hands and she soon dropped off.' She hasn't much strength in her, so we easily kept her quiet. I ain't so weak for an old woman, although I am on parish allowance. No, no. Did she drink the hot wine the doctor said she was to have? demanded the first. I tried to get it down, rejoined the other, but her teeth were tight set, and she clenched the mug so hard that it was as much as I could do to get it back again. So I drank it, and it did me good. Looking cautiously round to ascertain that they were not overheard, the two hags cowered nearer to the fire and chuckled heartily. "'I mind the time,' said the first speaker, "'when she would have done the same and made rare fun of it afterwards.' "'Aye, that she would,' rejoined the other. "'She had a merry heart. A many, many beautiful corpses she laid out, as nice and neat as wax-work. My old eyes have seen them, aye, and those old hands touched them too, for I have helped her scores at times." Stretching forth her trembling fingers as she spoke, the old creature shook them exultingly before her face, and, fumbling in her pocket, brought out an old, time-discoloured tin snuff-box, from which she shook a few grains into the outstretched palm of her companion, and a few more into her own. While they were thus employed, the matron, who had been impatiently watching until the dying woman should awaken from her stupor, joined them by the fire, and sharply asked how long she was to wait. "'Not long, mistress,' replied the second woman, looking up into her face. "'We have none of us long to wait for death. Patience, patience. He'll be here soon enough for us all.' "'Hold your tongue, you doting idiot,' said the matron, sternly. "'You, Martha, tell me, has she been in this way before?' "'Often.' answered the first woman. "'But will never be again,' added the second one. "'That is, she'll never wake again but once, and mind, mistress, that won't be for long.' "'Long or short,' said the matron snappishly, "'she won't find me here when she does wake. Take care, both of you, how you worry me again for nothing. It's no part of my duty to see all the old women in the house die, and I won't, that's more. Mind that, you impudent old harridans. 
If you make a fool of me again, I'll soon cure you, I warrant you." She was bouncing away when a cry from the two women who had turned towards the bed caused her to look round. The patient had raised herself upright and was stretching her arms towards them. "'Who's that?' she cried in a hollow voice. "'Hush, hush!' said one of the women, stooping over her. "'Lie down, lie down!' "'I'll never lie down again alive,' said the woman, struggling. "'I will tell her. Come here, nearer, let me whisper in your ear.' She clutched the matron by the arm and, forcing her into a chair by the bedside, was about to speak, when, looking round, she caught sight of the two old women bending forward in the attitude of eager listeners. "'Turn them away,' said the woman drowsily. "'Make haste, make haste.' The two old crones, chiming in together, began pouring out many piteous lamentations that the poor dear was too far gone to know her best friends, and were uttering sundry protestations that they would never leave her, when the superior pushed them from the room, closed the door, and returned to the bedside. On being excluded the old ladies changed their tone, and cried through the keyhole that old Sally was drunk which indeed was not unlikely, since, in addition to a moderate dose of opium prescribed by the apothecary, she was labouring under the effects of a final taste of gin and water, which had been privily administered in the openness of their hearts by the worthy old ladies themselves. "'Now, listen to me,' said the dying woman aloud, as if making a great effort to revive one latent spark of energy. "'In this very room, in this very bed, I once nursed a pretty young creature.' that was brought into the house with her feet cut and bruised with walking, and all soiled with dust and blood. She gave birth to a boy and died. Let me think. What was the year again?" "'Never mind the year,' said the impatient auditor. What about her?' "'Aye,' murmured the sick woman, relapsing into her former drowsy state. "'What about her? What about—I know!' she cried, jumping fiercely up, her face flushed, and her eyes starting from her head. I robbed her, so I did. She wasn't cold. I tell you, she wasn't cold when I stole it." "'Stole what, for God's sake?' cried the matron, with a gesture as if she would call for help. "'It,' replied the woman, laying her hand over the other's mouth, "'the only thing she had. She wanted clothes to keep her warm and food to eat, but she had kept it safe and had it in her bosom. It was gold, I tell you, rich gold that might have saved her life.' Gold echoed the matron, bending eagerly over the woman as she fell back. "'Go on, go on. Yes, what of it? Who was the mother? When was it?' "'She charged me to keep it safe,' replied the old woman with a groan, "'and trusted me as the only woman about her. I stole it in my heart when she first showed it to me hanging round her neck, and the child's death perhaps is on me besides. They would have treated him better had they known it all.' "'Known what?' asked the other. Speak. The boy grew so like his mother, said the woman, rambling on and not heeding the question, that I could never forget it when I saw his face. Poor girl, poor girl, she was so young too. Such a gentle lamb. Wait, there's more to tell. I have not told you all, have I? No, no, replied the matron, inclining her head to catch the words, as they came more faintly from the dying woman. Be quick, or it may be too late. The mother, said the woman, making a more violent effort than before, the mother, when the pains of death first came upon her, whispered in my ear that if her baby was born alive and thrived, the day might come when it would not feel so much disgrace to hear its poor young mother named. 
and oh kind heaven she said folding her thin hands together whether it be boy or girl raise up some friends for it in this troubled world and take pity upon a lonely desolate child abandoned to its mercy the boy's name demanded the matron they called him oliver replied the woman feebly the gold i stole was yes yes what cried the other she was bending eagerly over the woman to hear her reply, but drew back instinctively as she once again rose slowly and stiffly into a sitting posture, then, clutching the coverlid with both hands, muttered some indistinct sounds in her throat and fell lifeless on the bed. "'Stone dead,' said one of the old women, hurrying in as soon as the door was opened. "'And nothing to tell, after all,' rejoined the matron, walking carelessly away. The two crones, to all appearance too busily occupied in preparations for the dreadful duties to make any reply, were left alone hovering about the body. End of chapter 24wherein this history reverts to Mr. Fagan and company. While these things were passing in the country workhouse, Mr. Fagan sat in the old den, the same from which Oliver had been removed by the girl, brooding over a dull, smoky fire. He held a pair of bellows upon his knee with which he had been apparently endeavouring to rouse it into more cheerful action but he had fallen into deep thought, and with his arms folded on them and his chin resting on his thumbs, fixed his eyes abstractedly on the rusty bars. At a table behind him sat the artful dodger, Master Charlie Bates and Mr. Chitling, all intent upon a game of whist, the artful taking dummy against Master Bates and Mr. Chitling. The countenance of the first-named gentleman, particularly intelligent at all times, acquired great additional interest from his close observance of the game, and his attentive perusal of Mr. Chitling's hand upon which from time to time, as occasion served, he bestowed a variety of earnest glances, wisely regulating his own play by the result of his observations upon his neighbour's cards. It being a cold night the dodger wore his hat, as indeed was often his custom within doors. He also sustained a clay pipe between his teeth, which he only removed for a brief space when he deemed it necessary to apply for refreshment to a quart pot upon the table which stood ready-filled with gin and water for the accommodation of the company. Master Bates was also attentive to the play, but being of a more excitable nature than his accomplished friend, it was observable that he more frequently applied himself to the gin and water, and moreover indulged in many jests and irrelevant remarks, all highly unbecoming a scientific rubber. Indeed the artful, presuming upon their close attachment, more than once took occasion to reason gravely with his companion upon these improprieties, all of which remonstrances Master Bates received in extremely good part, merely requesting his friend to be blowed, or to insert his head in a sack, or replying with some other neatly turned witticism of a similar kind, the happy application of which excited considerable admiration in the mind of Mr. Chitling. It was remarkable that the latter gentleman and his partner invariably lost, 
and that the circumstance, so far from angering Master Bates, appeared to afford him the highest amusement, inasmuch as he laughed most uproariously at the end of every deal, and protested that he had never seen such a jolly game in all his born days. Well, "'That's two doubles and the rub,' said Mr. Chitling, with a very long face, as he drew half a crown from his waistcoat pocket. "'I never see such a feller as you, Jack. You win everything.' Even when we've good cards, Charlie and I can't make nothing of em. Either the master or the manner of his remark, which was made very ruefully, delighted Charlie Bates so much, that his consequent shout of laughter roused the Jew from his reverie, and induced him to inquire what was the matter. "'Matter, Fagin,' cried Charlie, "'I wish you had watched the play. Tommy Chitling hasn't won a point, and I went partners with him against the artful and dumb.' "'Aye, aye,' said the Jew with a grin, which sufficiently demonstrated that he was at no loss to understand the reason. "'Try him again, Tom. Try him again.' "'No more of it for me, thank ye, Fagin,' replied Mr. Chitling. "'I've had enough. That ere dodger has such a run of luck that there's no standing again him.' "'Ah, <laughs> my dear,' replied the Jew, "'you must get up very early in the morning to win against the dodger.' "'Morning,' said Charlie Bates. "'You must put your boots on overnight, and have a telescope at each eye and an opera-glass between your shoulders if you want to come over him.' Mr. Dawkins received these handsome compliments with much philosophy, and offered to cut any gentleman in company for the first picture-card at a shilling a time. Nobody accepted the challenge, and his pipe being by this time smoked out, he proceeded to amuse himself by sketching a ground plan of Newgate on the table with a piece of chalk which had served him in lieu of counters, whistling meantime with particular shrillness. "'How precious dull you are, Tommy,' said the dodger, stopping short when there had been a long silence, and addressing Mr. Chitling. "'What do you think he's thinking of, Fagin?' "'How should I know, my dear?' replied the Jew, looking round as he plied the bellows. "'About his losses, maybe.' Of the little retirement in the country that he's just left, eh? <laughs> That's it, my dear. Not a bit of it, replied the dodger, stopping the subject of discourse as Mr. Chitling was about to reply. What do you say, Charlie? I should say, replied Master Bates with a grin, that he was uncommon sweet upon Betsy. See how he's a-blushing? Oh, my eye, there's a merry-go-rounder. Tommy Chitling's in love. Oh, Fagin, Fagin, what a spree! Thoroughly overpowered with the notion of Mr. Chitling being the victim of the tender passion, Master Bates threw himself back in his chair with such violence that he lost his balance, and pitched over upon the floor, where, the accident abating nothing of his merriment, he lay at full length until his laugh was over, and then he resumed his former position and began another laugh. "'Never mind him, my dear,' said the Jew, winking at Mr. Dawkins, and giving Master Bates a reproving tap with the nozzle of the bellows. "'Betsy's a fine girl. Stick up to her, Tom. Stick up to her.' "'What I mean to say, Fagin,' replied Mr. Chitling, very red in the face, "'is that it isn't anything to anybody here.' "'No more it is,' replied the Jew. "'Charlie will talk. Don't mind him, my dear, don't mind him. Betsy's a fine girl.' Do as she bids you, Tom, and you will make your fortune. So I do do as she bids me, replied Mr. Chitling. I shouldn't have been mill if it hadn't been for her advice. But it turned out a good job for you, didn't it, Fagin? And what six weeks of it? 
it must come some time or another and why not in the winter time when you don't want to go out a walking so much eh fagin ah to be sure my dear replied the jew you wouldn't mind it again tom would you asked the dodger winking upon charley and the jew if bet was all right i mean to say that i shouldn't replied tom angrily there now ah who'd say as much as that i should like to know eh fagin nobody my dear replied the jew not a soul tom i don't know one of em that would do it besides you not one of em my dear i might a got clear off if i'd split upon her mightn't i fagin angrily pursued the poor half-witted dupe a word for me would have done it wouldn't it fagin to be sure it would my dear replied the jew but i didn't blab did i fagin demanded tom pouring question upon question with great volubility no no to be sure replied the jew you are too stout-hearted for that a deal too stout-hearted my dear perhaps i was rejoined tom looking round and if i was what's to laugh at in that eh fagin the jew perceiving that mr chitling was considerably roused hastened to assure him that nobody was laughing and to prove the gravity of the company appealed to master bates the principal offender but unfortunately charley in opening his mouth to reply that he was never more serious in his life was unable to prevent the escape of such a violent roar that the abused mr chitling without any preliminary ceremonies rushed across the room and aimed a blow at the offender who being skilful in evading pursuit ducked to avoid it and chose his time so well that it lighted on the chest of the merry old gentleman and caused him to stagger to the wall where he stood panting for breath while mr chitling looked on in intense dismay hark cried the dodger at this moment i heard the tinkler catching up the light he crept softly upstairs the bell was rung again with some impatience while the party were in darkness after a short pause the dodger reappeared and whispered fagin mysteriously what cried the jew alone the dodger nodded in the affirmative and shading the flame of the candle with his hand gave charley bates a private intimation in dumb show that he had better not be funny just then having performed this friendly office he fixed his eyes on the jew's face and awaited his directions the old man bit his yellow fingers and meditated for some seconds his face working with agitation the while as if he dreaded something and feared to know the worst at length he raised his head where is he he asked the dodger pointed to the floor above and made a gesture as if to leave the room yes said the jew answering the mute inquiry bring him down hush quiet charley gently tom scarce scarce this brief direction to charley bates and his recent antagonist was softly and immediately obeyed there was no sound of their whereabout when the dodger descended the stairs bearing the light in his hand and followed by a man in a coarse smock-frock who after casting a hurried glance round the room pulled off a large wrapper which had concealed the lower portion of his face and disclosed all haggard unwashed and unshorn the features of flash toby crackett how are you faggy said this worthy nodding to the jew pop that shawl away on my caster dodger so that i may know where to find it when i cut that's the time of day you'll be a fine young cracksman afore the old foil now with these words he pulled up the smock-frock and winding it round his middle drew a chair to the fire and placed his feet upon the hob 
"'See here, Faggy,' he said, pointing disconsolately to his top-boots, "'not a drop of day and martin since you know when, not a bubble of blacking, boy, Jove. But don't look at me in that way, man. All in good time. I can't talk about business till I've had eat and drink. So produce the sustenance, and let's have a quiet fill-out for the first time in these three days.' The Jew motioned to the Dodger to place what eatables there were upon the table, and, seating himself opposite the housebreaker, waited his leisure. To judge from appearances, Toby was by no means in a hurry to open the conversation. At first the Jew contented himself with patiently watching his countenance, as if to gain from its expression some clue to the intelligence he brought, but in vain. He looked tired and worn, but there was the same complacent repose upon his features that they always wore, and through dirt and beard and whisker there still shone unimpaired the self-satisfied smirk of Flash Toby Crackett. Then the Jew, in an agony of impatience, watched every morsel he put into his mouth, pacing up and down the room meanwhile in irrepressible excitement. It was all of no use. Toby continued to eat with the utmost outward indifference until he could eat no more. Then, ordering the dodger out, he closed the door, mixed a glass of spirits and water, and composed himself for talking. First and foremost, Faggy, said Toby. Yes, yes, interposed the Jew, drawing up his chair. Mr. Crackett stopped to take a draught of spirits and water, and to declare that the gin was excellent. Then, placing his feet against the low mantelpiece, so as to bring his boots to about the level of his eye, he quietly resumed. First and foremost, Faggy, said the housebreaker, how's Bill? What? screamed the Jew, starting from his seat. Why, you don't mean to say, began Toby, turning pale. Mean? cried the Jew, stamping furiously on the ground. Where are they? Sykes and the boy, where are they? Where have they been? Where are they hiding? Why have they not been here? The crack failed, said Toby faintly. I know it, replied the Jew, tearing a newspaper from his pocket and pointing to it. What more? They fired and hit the boy. We cut over the fields at the back, with him between us, straight as the crow flies, through hedge and ditch. They gave chase. Damn, the whole country was awake, and the dogs upon us. The boy! Bill had him on his back, and scudded like the wind. We stopped to take him between us, his head hung down, and he was cold. They were close upon our heels, every man for himself, and each from the gallows. We parted company, and left the youngster lying in a ditch. Alive or dead, that's all I know about him. The Jew stopped to hear no more, but uttering a loud yell, and twining his hands in his hair, rushed from the room and from the house. End of chapter 25《Chapter Twenty Six of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. In which a mysterious character appears upon the scene, and many things inseparable from this history are done and performed. The old man had gained the street corner before he began to recover the effect of Toby Crackett's intelligence. He had relaxed nothing of his unusual speed, but was still pressing onward in the same wild and disordered manner, when the sudden dashing past of a carriage, and a boisterous cry from the foot-passengers, who saw his danger, drove him back upon the pavement. 
avoiding as much as possible all the main streets and skulking only through the byways and alleys he at length emerged on snow hill here he walked even faster than before nor did he linger until he had again turned into a court when as if conscious that he was now in his proper element he fell into his usual shuffling pace and seemed to breathe more freely near to the spot on which snow hill and holborn hill meet opens upon the right hand as you come out of the city a narrow and dismal alley leading to saffron hill in its filthy shops are exposed for sale huge bunches of second-hand silk handkerchiefs of all sizes and patterns for here reside the traders who purchase them from pickpockets hundreds of these handkerchiefs hang dangling from pegs outside the windows or flaunting from the door-posts and the shelves within are piled with them confined as the limits of field lane are it has its barber its coffee-shop its beer-shop and its fried fish warehouse it is a commercial colony of itself the emporium of petty larceny visited at early morning and setting in of dusk by silent merchants who traffic in dark back parlours and who go as strangely as they come here the clothesman the shoe-vamper and the rag-merchant display their goods as signboards to the petty thief here stores of old iron and bones and heaps of mildewy fragments of woollen stuff and linen rust and rot in the grimy cellars it was into this place that the jew turned he was well known to the sallow denizens of the lane for such of them as were on the lookout to buy or sell nodded familiarly as he passed along he replied to their salutations in the same way but bestowed no closer recognition until he reached the further end of the alley when he stopped to address a salesman of small stature who had squeezed as much of his person into a child's chair as the chair would hold and was smoking a pipe at his warehouse door why the sight of you mr fagin would cure the hop to me said this respectable trader in acknowledgment of the jew's inquiry after his health the neighbourhood was a little too hot lively said fagin elevating his eyebrows and crossing his hands upon his shoulders well i've heard that complained of once or twice before replied the trader but it soon cools down again don't you find it so fagin nodded in the affirmative pointing in the direction of saffron hill he inquired whether any one was up yonder to-night at the cripples inquired the man the jew nodded let me see pursued the merchant reflecting yes there are some half-dozen of them gone in that i knows i don't think your friend's there sykes is not i suppose inquired the jew with a disappointed countenance none is twentus as the lawyers say replied the little man shaking his head and looking amazingly shy have you got anything in my line to-night nothing to-night said the jew turning away are you going up to the cripples fagin cried the little man calling after him stop i don't mind if i have a drop there with you but as the jew looking back waved his hand to intimate that he preferred being alone and moreover as the little man could not very easily disengage himself from the chair the sign of the cripples was for a time bereft of the advantage of mr lively's presence by the time he had got upon his legs the jew had disappeared so mr lively after ineffectually standing on tiptoe in the hope of catching sight of him again forced himself into the little chair and exchanging a shake of the head with a lady in the opposite shop in which doubt and mistrust were plainly mingled resumed his pipe with grave demeanour the three cripples or rather the cripples which was the sign by which the establishment was familiarly known to its patrons was the public-house in which mr sykes and his dog have already figured 
Merely making a sign to a man at the bar, Fagin walked straight upstairs, and opening the door of a room and softly insinuating himself into the chamber, looked anxiously about, shading his eyes with his hand as if in search for some particular person. The room was illuminated by two gaslights, the glare of which was prevented by the barred shutters and closely drawn curtains of faded red from being visible outside. The ceiling was blackened to prevent its colour from being injured by the flaring of the lamps, and the place was so full of dense tobacco-smoke that at first it was scarcely possible to discern anything more. By degrees, however, as some of it cleared away through the open door, an assemblage of heads as confused as the noises that greeted the ear might be made out, and as the eye grew more accustomed to the scene, the spectator gradually became aware of the presence of a numerous company, male and female, crowded round a long table, at the upper end of which sat a chairman with a hammer of office in his hand, while a professional gentleman with a bluish nose and his face tied up for the benefit of a toothache presided at a jingling piano in a remote corner. As Fagin stepped softly in, the professional gentleman running over the keys by way of prelude occasioned a general cry of order for a song, which, having subsided, a young lady proceeded to entertain the company with a ballad in four verses, between each of which the accompanist played the melody all through as loud as he could. When this was over the chairman gave a sentiment, after which the professional gentleman on the chairman's right and left volunteered a duet, and sang it with great applause. It was curious to observe some faces which stood out prominently from among the group. There was the chairman himself, the landlord of the house, a coarse, rough, heavy-built fellow who, while the songs were proceeding, rolled his eyes hither and thither, and seeming to give himself up to joviality, had an eye for everything that was done, and an ear for everything that was said, and sharp ones too. Near him were the singers, receiving with professional indifference the compliments of the company, and applying themselves in turn to a dozen proffered glasses of spirits and water, tendered by their more boisterous admirers, whose countenances, expressive of almost every vice in almost every grade, irresistibly attracted the attention by their very repulsiveness. Cunning, ferocity, and drunkenness in all its stages were there in their strongest aspect, and women, some with the last lingering tinge of their early freshness almost fading as you looked, others with every mark and stamp of their sex utterly beaten out, and presenting but one loathsome blank of profligacy and crime, some mere girls, others but young women, and none past the prime of life, form the darkest and saddest portion of this dreary picture. Fagin, troubled by no grave emotions, looked eagerly from face to face while these proceedings were in progress, but apparently without meeting that of which he was in search. Succeeding at length in catching the eye of the man who occupied the chair, he beckoned to him slightly and left the room as quietly as he had entered it. "'What can I do for you, Mr. Fagin?' inquired the man as he followed him out to the landing. "'Won't you join us? They'll be delighted, every one of them.' The Jew shook his head impatiently and said in a whisper, is he here? Now, replied the man. And no news of Barney? inquired Fagin. None, replied the landlord of the cripples, for it was he. He won't stir till old safe. Depend upon it, they're on the scent down there, and that if he moved he'd blow upon the thing at once. He's all right enough, Barney is, else I should have heard of him. I'll pound it that Barney's managing properly, let him alone for that. "'Will he be here to-night?' asked the Jew, laying the same emphasis on the pronoun as before. "'Monks, do you mean?' inquired the landlord, hesitating. "'Hush!' said the Jew. "'Yes, 
Certain, replied the man, drawing a gold watch from his fob. I expected him here before now. If you wait ten minutes he'll be. No, no, said the Jew hastily, as though, however desirous he might be to see the person in question, he was nevertheless relieved by his absence. Tell him I came here to see him, and that he must come to me to-night. No, say to-morrow night. As he is not here, to-morrow will be time enough. Good, said the man. Nothing more. Not a word now, said the Jew, descending the stairs. I say, said the other, looking over the rails and speaking in a hoarse whisper. What a time this would be for a cell. I've got Phil Barker here so drunk that a boy might take him. Ah, but it's not Phil Barker's time, said the Jew, looking up. Phil has something more to do before we can afford to part with him. So go back to the company, my dear, and tell them to lead merry lives for the last. <laughs> the landlord reciprocated the old man's laugh and returned to his guests. The Jew was no sooner alone than his countenance resumed its former expression of anxiety and thought. After a brief reflection he called a hack cabriolet and bade the man drive towards Bethnal Green. He dismissed him within some quarter of a mile of Mr. Sykes's residence, and performed the short remainder of the distance on foot. "'Now,' muttered the Jew as he knocked at the door, "'if there's any deep play here I shall have it out of you, my girl, cunning as you are.' She was in her room, the woman said. Fagin crept softly upstairs and entered it without any previous ceremony. The girl was alone, lying with her head upon the table and her hair straggling over it. She has been drinking, thought the Jew coolly, or perhaps she's only miserable. The old man turned to close the door as he made this reflection. The noise thus occasioned roused the girl. She eyed his crafty face narrowly as she inquired to his recital of Toby Crackett's story. When it was concluded she sank into her former attitude, but spoke not a word. She pushed the candle impatiently away and once or twice as she feverishly changed her position, shuffled her feet upon the ground. But this was all. During the silence the Jew looked restlessly about the room, as if to assure himself that there were no appearances of Sykes having covertly returned. Apparently satisfied with his inspection, he coughed twice or thrice and made as many efforts to open a conversation. But the girl heeded him no more than if he had been made of stone. At length he made another attempt, and rubbing his hands together said in his most conciliatory tone, and where should you think Bill was now, my dear?" The girl moaned out some half-intelligible reply that she could not tell, and seemed from the smothered noise that escaped her to be crying. "'And the boy, too,' said the Jew, straining his eyes to catch a glimpse of her face. "'Poor little child! Left in a ditch, Nance, only think!' "'The child,' said the girl, suddenly looking up. Is better where he is than among us, and if no harm comes to Bill from it, I hope he lies dead in the ditch, and that his young bones may rot there." "'What?' cried the Jew, in amazement. "'Aye, I do,' returned the girl, meeting his gaze. "'I shall be glad to have him away from my eyes, and to know that the worst is over. I can't bear to have him about me. The sight of him turns me against myself and all of you.' "'Pooh!' said the Jew, scornfully. "'You're drunk!' "'Am I?' cried the girl bitterly. "'It's no fault of yours if I am not. You'd never have me anything else if you had your will, except now the humour doesn't suit you, doesn't it?' "'No,' rejoined the Jew furiously. "'It does not.' "'Change it, then,' responded the girl with a laugh. "'Change it?' 
exclaimed the Jew, exasperated beyond all bounds by his companion's unexpected obstinacy and the vexation of the night. "'I will change it. Listen to me, you drab. Listen to me, who, if six words, can strangle Sykes as surely as if I had his bull's throat between my fingers now. If he comes back and leaves the boy behind him, if he gets all free and dead or alive fails to restore him to me, murder him yourself if you would have him escape, Jack Ketch, and do it the moment he sets foot in this room, or on me it will be too late.' "'What is all this?' cried the girl involuntarily. "'What is it?' pursued Fagin, mad with rage. "'When the boy's worth hundreds of pounds to me, am I to lose what chance threw me in the way of getting safely, through the whims of a drunken gang that I could whistle away the lies of, and me bound too to a born devil that only wants the will, and has the power to—to—' Panting for breath, the old man stammered for a word, and in that instant checked the torrent of his wrath, and changed his whole demeanour. A moment before his clenched hands had grasped the air, his eyes had dilated, and his face grown livid with passion, but now he shrunk into a chair and, cowering together, trembled with the apprehension of having himself disclosed some hidden villainy. After a short silence he ventured to look round at his companion. He appeared somewhat reassured on beholding her in the same listless attitude from which he had first roused her. "'Nancy, dear,' croaked the Jew in his usual voice, "'do you mind me, dear?' "'Don't worry me now, Fagin,' replied the girl, raising her head languidly. "'If Bill has not done it this time, he will another. "'He has done many a good job for you, and will do many more when he can. "'And when he can't, he won't. So no more about that.' "'Regarding this boy, my dear,' said the Jew, rubbing the palms of his hands nervously together. "'The boy must take his chance with the rest,' interrupted Nancy hastily. And I say again, I hope he's dead, and out of arm's way, and out of yours, that is, if Bill comes to no arm. And if Toby's got clear off, Bill's pretty sure to be safe, for Bill's worth two of Toby any time. And about what I was saying, my dear, observed the Jew, keeping his glistening eyes steadily upon her. You must say it all over again, if it's anything you want me to do, rejoined Nancy, and if it is, you had better wait till tomorrow. You put me up for a minute, but now I'm stupid again. Fagin put several other questions, all with the same drift of ascertaining whether the girl had profited by his unguarded hints. But she answered them so readily, and was withal so utterly unmoved by his searching looks, that his original impression of her being more than a trifle in liquor was confirmed. Nancy, indeed, was not exempt from a failing which was very common among the Jews' female pupils, and in which, in their tenderer years, they were rather encouraged than checked. Her disordered appearance, and the wholesale perfume of Geneva which pervaded the apartment, afforded strong confirmatory evidence of the justice of the Jew's supposition, and when, after indulging in the temporary display of violence above described, she subsided first into dullness and afterwards into a compound of feelings, under the influence of which she shed tears one minute, and the next gave utterance to various exclamations of, Never say die, and diverse calculations as to what be the amount of the odds so long as a lady or gentleman was happy, Mr. Fagin, who had had considerable experience of such matters in his time, saw with great satisfaction that she was very far gone indeed. Having eased his mind by this discovery, and having accomplished his twofold object of imparting to the girl what he had that night heard, and of ascertaining with his own eyes that Sykes had not returned, Mr. Fagin again turned his face homeward, leaving his young friend asleep with her head upon the table. It was within an hour of midnight, the weather being dark and piercing cold, he had no great temptation to loiter. 
The sharp wind that scoured the streets seemed to have cleared them of passengers as of dust and mud, for few people were abroad, and they were, to all appearance, hastening fast home. It blew from the right quarter for the Jew, however, and straight before it he went, trembling and shivering as every fresh gust drove him rudely on his way. He had reached the corner of his own street, and was already fumbling in his pocket for the door-key, when a dark figure emerged from a projecting entrance which lay deep in shadow, and, crossing the road, glided up to him unperceived. "'Fagin,' whispered a voice close to his ear. "'Ah,' said the Jew, turning quickly around, "'is that—' "'Yes,' interrupted the stranger. "'I have been lingering here these two hours. Where the devil have you been?' "'On your business, my dear,' replied the Jew, glancing uneasily at his companion, and slackening his pace as he spoke. "'On your business all night.' "'Now, oh, of course,' said the stranger, with a sneer. "'Well, and what's come of it?' "'Nothing good,' said the Jew. "'Nothing bad, I hope,' said the stranger, stopping short and turning a startled look upon his companion. The Jew shook his head and was about to reply when the stranger, interrupting him, motioned to the house before which they had by this time arrived, remarking that he had better say what he had got to say under cover, for his blood was chilled with standing about so long and the wind blew through him. Fagin looked as if he could have willingly excused himself from taking home a visitor at that unreasonable hour, and indeed muttered something about having no fire, but his companion, repeating his request in a peremptory manner, he unlocked the door and requested him to close it softly while he got a light. "'It's as dark as the grave,' said the man, groping forward a few steps. "'Make haste!' "'Shut the door!' whispered Fagin from the end of the passage. As he spoke it closed with a loud noise. "'It wasn't my doing,' said the other man, feeling his way. "'The wind blew it too, or it shut of its own accord, one or the other. Look sharp with the light, or I shall knock my brains out against something in this confounded hole.' Fagin stealthily descended the kitchen stairs. After a short absence he returned with a lighted candle, and the intelligence that Toby Crackett was asleep in the back room below and that the boys were in the front one. Beckoning the man to follow him, he led the way upstairs. "'We can say the few words we've got to say in here, my dear,' said the Jew, throwing open a door on the first floor. "'And as there are holes in the shutters and we never show lights to our neighbours, we'll set the candle on the stairs. There.' With those words the Jew, stooping down, placed the candle on an upper flight of stairs exactly opposite to the room door. This done he led the way into the apartment, which was destitute of all movables save a broken armchair and an old couch or sofa without covering which stood behind the door. Upon this piece of furniture the stranger sat himself with the air of a weary man, and the Jew drawing up the armchair opposite they sat face to face. It was not quite dark, the door was partially open, and the candle outside threw a feeble reflection on the opposite wall. They conversed for some time in whispers, though nothing of the conversation was distinguishable beyond a few disjointed words here and there. A listener might easily have perceived that Fagin appeared to be defending himself against some remarks of the stranger, and that the latter was in a state of considerable irritation. They might have been talking thus for a quarter of an hour or more when monks, by which name the Jew had designated the strange man several times in the course of their colloquy, said, raising his voice a little, "'I tell you again, it was badly planned. Why not have kept him here among the rest and made a sneaking, snivelling pickpocket of him at once?' "'Only hear him!' exclaimed the Jew, shrugging his shoulders. "'Why, do you mean to say you couldn't have done it if you'd chosen?' demanded Monk sternly. "'Haven't you done it with other boys scores of times?' 
If you had had patience for a twelvemonth at most, couldn't you have got him convicted, and sent safely out of the kingdom, perhaps for life?' "'Whose turn would that have served, my dear?' inquired the Jew, humbly. "'Mine,' replied Monks. "'But not mine,' said the Jew, submissively. "'He might have become of use to me. When there are two parties to a bargain, it is only reasonable that the interests of both should be consulted. Is it, my good friend?' "'What then?' demanded Monks. "'I saw it was not easy to train him to the business,' replied the Jew. "'He was not like the other boys in the same circumstances.' "'Curse him now,' muttered the man, "'or he would have been a thief long ago.' "'I had now hold upon him to make him worse,' pursued the Jew, anxiously watching the countenance of his companion. "'His hand was not in. I had nothing to frighten him with, which we always must have in the beginning, or we labour in vain. What could I do?' send him out with a dodger and charley we had enough of that at first my dear i trembled for us all that was not my doing observed monks no no my dear renewed the jew and i don't quarrel with it now because if it had never happened you might never have clapped eyes upon the boy to notice him and so led to the discovery that it was him you were looking for well i got him back for you by means of the girl and then she begins to favour him throttle the girl said monks impatiently why we can't afford to do that just now my dear replied the jew smiling and besides that sort of thing is not in our way or one of these days i might be glad to have it done i know what these girls are monks well as soon as the boy begins to harden she care no more for him than for a block of wood you want him made a thief if he is alive i can make him one from this time and if if said the jew drawing nearer to the other it's not likely mind but if the worst comes to the worst and he is dead it's no fault of mine if he is interposed the other man with a look of terror and clasping the jew's arm with trembling hands mind that fagin i had no hand in it anything but his death i told you from the first i won't shed blood is always found out and haunts a man besides if they shot him dead i was not the cause do you hear me fire this internal den what's that what cried the jew grasping the coward round the body with both arms as he sprung to his feet where yonder replied the man glaring at the opposite wall the shadow i saw the shadow of a woman in a cloak and bonnet pass along the wainscot like a breath the jew released his hold and they rushed tumultuously from the room the candle wasted by the draught was standing where it had been placed it showed them only the empty staircase and their own white faces they listened intently a profound silence reigned throughout the house. "'It's your fancy,' said the Jew, taking up the light and turning to his companion. "'I'll swear I saw it,' replied Monks, trembling. "'It was bending forward when I saw it first, and when I spoke it darted away.' The Jew glanced contemptuously at the pale face of his associate, and telling him he could follow, if he pleased, ascended the stairs. They looked into all the rooms. They were cold, bare, and empty they descended into the passage and thence into the cellars below the green damp hung upon the low walls the tracks of the snail and slug glistened in the light of the candle but all was still as death what do you think now said the jew when they had regained the passage besides ourselves there's not a creature in the house except toby and the boys and they're safe enough see here as a proof of the fact the jew drew forth two keys from his pocket and explained that when he first went downstairs he had locked them in to prevent any intrusion on the conference this accumulated testimony effectually staggered mr monks 
His protestations had gradually become less and less vehement as they proceeded in their search without making any discovery, and now he gave vent to several very grim laughs, and confessed it could only have been his excited imagination. He declined any renewal of the conversation, however, for that night, suddenly remembering that it was past one o'clock, and so the amiable couple parted. End of chapter 26「Chapter twenty seven of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Atones for the unpoliteness of a former chapter, which deserted a lady most unceremoniously. As it would be by no means seemly in a humble author to keep so mighty a personage as a beadle waiting, with his back to the fire and the skirts of his coat gathered up under his arms until such time as it might suit his pleasure to relieve him, and as it would still less become his station or his gallantry to involve in the same neglect a lady on whom that beadle had looked with an eye of tenderness and affection, and in whose ear he had whispered sweet words which, coming from such a quarter, might well thrill the bosom of a maid or matron of whatsoever degree. The historian whose pen traces these words, trusting that he knows his place, and that he entertains a becoming reverence for those upon earth to whom high and important authority is delegated, hastens to pay them that respect which their position demands, and to treat them with all that duteous ceremony which their exalted rank, and by consequence great virtues, imperatively claim at his hands. Towards this end, indeed, he had proposed to introduce, in this place, a dissertation touching the divine right of beadles, and elucidative of the position that a beadle can do no wrong, which could not fail to have been both pleasurable and profitable to the right-minded reader, but which he is unfortunately compelled, by want of time and space, to postpone to some more convenient and fitting opportunity, on the arrival of which he will be prepared to show that a beadle properly constituted, that is to say, a parochial beadle attached to a parochial workhouse, and attending in his official capacity the parochial church, is in right and virtue of his office possessed of all the excellences and best qualities of humanity, and that to none of those excellences can mere company's beadles or court of law beadles or even chapel of ease beadles, save the last and they in a very lowly and inferior degree lay the remotest sustainable claim. Mr. Bumble had recounted the teaspoons, reweighed the sugar-tongs, made a closer inspection of the milk-pot, and ascertained to a nicety the exact condition of the furniture, down to the very horsehair seats of the chairs, and had repeated each process full half a dozen times, before he began to think that it was time for Mrs. Corney to return. Thinking begets thinking. As there were no sounds of Mrs. Corney's approach, it occurred to Mr. Bumble that it would be an innocent and virtuous way of spending the time if he were further to allay his curiosity by a cursory glance at the interior of Mrs. Corney's chest of drawers. Having listened at the keyhole to assure himself that nobody was approaching the chamber, Mr. Bumble, beginning at the bottom, proceeded to make himself acquainted with the contents of the three long drawers, which, being filled with various garments of good fashion and texture, carefully preserved between two layers of old newspaper, speckled with dried lavender, seemed to yield him exceeding satisfaction. Arriving in course of time at the right-hand corner drawer, in which was the key, and beholding therein a small padlocked box, which being shaken gave forth a pleasant sound as of the clinking of coin, Mr. Bumble returned with a stately walk to the fireplace, and resuming his old attitude said with a grave and determined air, 
I'll do it. He followed up this remarkable declaration by shaking his head in a waggish manner for ten minutes, as though he were remonstrating with himself for being such a pleasant dog, and then he took a view of his legs in profile with much seeming pleasure and interest. He was still placidly engaged in this latter survey when Mrs. Corney, hurrying into the room, threw herself in a breathless state on a chair by the fireside, and covering her eyes with one hand placed the other over her heart and gasped for breath. "'Mrs. Corney,' said Mr. Bumble, stooping over the matron, "'what is this, ma'am? Has anything happened, ma'am? Pray answer me. I'm on, on—' Mr. Bumble, in his alarm, could not immediately think of the word tenterhooks, so he said, "'Broken bottles!' "'Oh, Mr. Bumble,' cried the lady, "'I have been so dreadfully put out.' "'Put out, ma'am?' exclaimed Mr. Bumble. "'He was dared to.' "'I know,' said Mr. Bumble, checking himself with native majesty. "'It's them wishes paupers!' "'It's dreadful to think of,' said the lady, shuddering. "'Then don't think of it, ma'am,' rejoined Mr. Bumble. "'I can't help it,' whimpered the lady. "'Then take something, ma'am,' said Mr. Bumble, soothingly. "'A little of the wine.' "'Not for the world,' replied Mrs. Corney. "'I couldn't, oh! The top shelf in the right-hand corner, oh!' Uttering these words, the good lady pointed distractedly to the cupboard, and underwent a convulsion from internal spasms. Mr. Bumble rushed to the closet, and snatching a pint-green glass bottle from the shelf thus incoherently indicated, filled a teacup with its contents, and held it to the lady's lips. "'I'm better now,' said Mrs. Corney, falling back after drinking half of it. Mr. Bumble raised his eyes piously to the ceiling in thankfulness and bringing them down again to the brim of the cup, lifted it to his nose. "'Peppermint!' exclaimed Mrs. Corney in a faint voice, smiling gently on the beadle as she spoke. "'Try it. There's a little—a little something else in it.' Mr. Bumble tasted the medicine with a doubtful look, smacked his lips, took another taste, and put the cup down empty. "'It's very comforting,' said Mrs. Corney. "'Very much so indeed, ma'am,' said the beadle. As he spoke, he drew a chair beside the matron, and tenderly inquired what had happened to distress her. "'Nothing,' replied Mrs. Corney. "'I am a foolish, excitable, weak creature.' "'Not weak, ma'am,' retorted the Bumble, drawing his chair a little closer. "'Are you a weak creature, Mrs. Corney?' "'We are all weak creatures,' said Mrs. Corney, laying down a general principle. "'So we are,' said the beadle. Nothing was said on either side for a minute or two afterwards. By the expiration of that time Mr. Bumble had illustrated the position by removing his left arm from the back of Mrs. Corney's chair, where it had previously rested, to Mrs. Corney's apron-string, round which it gradually became entwined. "'We are all weak creatures,' said Mr. Bumble. Mrs. Corney sighed. "'Don't sigh, Mrs. Corney,' said Mr. Bumble. "'I can't help it,' said Mrs. Corney, and she sighed again. "'This is a very comfortable room, ma'am.' said Mr. Bumble, looking round. "'Another room and this, ma'am, would be a complete thing.' "'It would be too much for one,' murmured the lady. "'But not for two, ma'am,' rejoined Mr. Bumble, in soft accents. "'Eh, Mrs. Corney?' Mrs. Corney drooped her head when the beadle said this. The beadle drooped his to get a view of Mrs. Corney's face. Mrs. Corney, with great propriety, turned her head away and released her hand to get at her pocket-handkerchief but insensibly replaced it in that of Mr. Bumble. "'The board allows you coals, don't they, Mrs. Corney?' 
inquired the beadle, affectionately pressing her hand. "'And candles,' replied Mrs. Corney, slightly returning the pressure. "'Cowls, candles, and a house rent-free,' said Mr. Bumble. "'Now, Mrs. Corney, what an angel you are!' The lady was not proof against this burst of feeling. She sank into Mr. Bumble's arms, and that gentleman, in his agitation, imprinted a passionate kiss upon her chaste nose. "'Such parochial perfection!' exclaimed Mr. Bumble rapturously. "'You know that Mr. Slout is worse to-night, my fascinator?' "'Yes,' replied Mrs. Corney bashfully. "'He can't live a week, the doctors say,' pursued Mr. Bumble. "'He is the master of this establishment. His death will cause a vacancy.' that vacancy must be filled up oh mrs corney what a prospect this opens what a opportunity for a joining of hearts and housekeepings mrs corney sobbed the little word said mr bumble bending over the bashful beauty the one little 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 word my blessed corney yes sighed out the matron one more pursued the beadle compose your darling feelings for only one more when is it to come off? Mrs. Corney twice essayed to speak, and twice failed. At length, summoning up courage, she threw her arms round Mr. Bumble's neck, and said it might be as soon as ever he pleased, and that he was a irresistible duck. Matters being thus amicably and satisfactorily arranged, the contract was solemnly ratified in another teacupful of the peppermint mixture, which was rendered the more necessary by the flutter and agitation of the lady's spirits. While it was being disposed of, she acquainted Mr. Bumble with the old woman's decease. "'Very good,' said that gentleman, sipping his peppermint. "'I'll call at Sowbury's as I go home, and tell him to send to-morrow morning. Was it that as frightened you, love?' "'It wasn't anything particular, dear,' said the lady evasively. "'It must have been something, love,' urged Mr. Bumble. "'Won't you tell your own bee?' "'Not now,' rejoined the lady. "'One of these days, after we are married, dear.' after we are married exclaimed mr bumble it wasn't any imprudence from any of them male paupers as no no love interposed the lady hastily if i thought it was continued mr bumble if i thought as any one of em had dared lift his vulgar eyes to that lovely countenance they wouldn't have dared to do it love responded the lady they had better not said mr bumble clenching his fist let me see any man parochial or extra parochial as would presume to do it and i can tell him that i wouldn't do it a second time unembellished by any violence of gesticulation this might have seemed not a very high compliment to the lady's charms but as mr bumble accompanied the threat with many warlike gestures she was much touched with this proof of his devotion and protested with great admiration that he was indeed a dove the dove then turned up his coat-collar, put on his cocked hat, and having exchanged a long and affectionate embrace with his future partner, once again braved the cold wind of the night, merely pausing for a few minutes in the male pauper's ward to abuse them a little, with a view of satisfying himself that he could fill the office of workhouse master with needful acerbity. Assured of his qualifications, Mr. Bumble left the building with a light heart, and bright visions of his future promotion which served to occupy his mind until he reached the shop of the undertaker. Now Mr. and Mrs. Sowerbury having gone out to tea and supper, and Noah Claypole not being at any time disposed to take upon himself a greater amount of physical exertion than is necessary to a convenient performance of the two functions of eating and drinking, the shop was not closed, 
although it was past the usual hour of shutting up. Mr. Bumble tapped with his cane on the counter several times, but attracting no attention, and beholding a light shining through the glass window of the little parlour at the back of the shop, he made bold to peep in and see what was going forward, and when he saw what was going forward he was not a little surprised. The cloth was laid for supper, the table was covered with bread and butter, plates and glasses, a porter-pot and a wine-bottle. At the upper end of the table Mr. Noah Claypole lolled negligently in an easy-chair, with his legs thrown over one of the arms, an open clasp-knife in one hand, and a mass of buttered bread in the other. Close beside him stood Charlotte, opening oysters from a barrel which Mr. Claypole condescended to swallow with remarkable avidity. A more than ordinary redness in the region of the young gentleman's nose, and a kind of fixed wink in his right eye, denoted that he was in a slight degree intoxicated. These symptoms were confirmed by the intense relish with which he took his oysters, for which nothing but a strong appreciation of their cooling properties in case of internal fever could have sufficiently accounted. "'Here's a delicious fat one now, dear,' said Charlotte. "'Try em, do. Only this one.' "'What a delicious thing is an oyster,' remarked Mr. Claypole after he had swallowed it. "'What a pity it is a number of them should ever make you feel uncomfortable, isn't it, Charlotte?' "'It's quite a cruelty.' said Charlotte. "'So it is,' acquiesced Mr. Claypole. "'Ain't you fond of oysters?' "'Not overmuch,' replied Charlotte. "'I like to see you eat them, Noah, dear, better than eating them myself.' "'No,' said Noah reflectively. "'How queer!' "'Have another,' said Charlotte. "'Here's one with such a beautiful, delicate beard.' "'I can't manage any more,' said Noah. "'I'm very sorry.' "'Come here, Charlotte, and I'll kiss you.' "'What?' said Mr. Bumble, bursting into the room. "'Say that again, sir!' Charlotte uttered a scream and hid her face in her apron. Mr. Claypole, without making any further change in his position than suffering his legs to reach the ground, gazed at the beadle in drunken terror. "'Say it again, ye royal audacious fellow,' said Mr. Bumble. "'How dare you mention such a thing, sir? And how dare you encourage him, you insolent minx?' "'Kiss her!' exclaimed Mr. Bumble in strong indignation. "'Fuh!' Oh, I did mean to do it," said Noah, blubbering. "She's always a kissing of me, whether I like it or not." "Oh, Noah!" cried Charlotte reproachfully. "You are, you know you are," retorted Noah. "She's always a doing of it, Mister Bumble, sir. She chucks me under the chin, please, sir, and makes all manner of love." "Silence!" cried Mister Bumble sternly. "Take yourself downstairs, ma'am. Noah, you shut up the shop and say another word till your master comes home at your peril." and when he does come home, tell him that Mr. Bumble said he's to send an old woman's shell after breakfast tomorrow morning. Do you hear, sir? Kissing! cried Mr. Bumble, holding up his hands. The sin and wickedness of the lower order in this parochial district is frightful. If Parliament don't take their abominable courses under consideration, this country's ruined, and the character of the peasantry gone for ever. With these words the beadle strolled with a lofty and gloomy air from the undertaker's premises. And now that we have accompanied him so far on his road home, and have made all necessary preparations for the old woman's funeral, let us set on foot a few inquiries after young Oliver Twist, and ascertain whether he be still lying in the ditch where Toby Crackett left him. End of chapter 27「Chapter 28 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. 
looks after Oliver, and proceeds with his adventures. "'Wolves tear your throats!' muttered Sykes, grinding his teeth. Oh, "'I wish I was among some of you. You'd owl the horse for it.' As Sykes growled forth this imprecation with the most desperate ferocity that his desperate nature was capable of, he rested the body of the wounded boy across his bended knee, and turned his head for an instant to look back at his pursuers. There was little to be made out in the mist and darkness, but the loud shouting of the men vibrated through the air, and the barking of the neighbouring dogs, roused by the sound of the alarm-bell, resounded in every direction. "'Stop, you white-livered hound!' cried the robber, shouting after Toby Crackett, who, making the best use of his long legs, was already ahead. "'Stop!' The repetition of the word brought Toby to a dead standstill for he was not quite satisfied that he was beyond the range of pistol-shot, and Sykes was in no mood to be played with. "'Bear a hand with the boy!' cried Sykes, beckoning furiously to his confederate. "'Come back!' Toby made a show of returning, but ventured in a low voice, broken for want of breath, to intimate considerable reluctance as he came slowly along. "'Quicker!' cried Sykes, laying the boy in a dry ditch at his feet, and drawing a pistol from his pocket. "'Don't play booty with me!' At this moment the noise grew louder. Sykes, again looking round, could discern that the men who had given chase were already climbing the gate of the field in which he stood, and that a couple of dogs were some paces in advance of them. "'It's all up, Bill!' cried Toby. "'Drop the kid and show him your eels!' With this parting advice Mr. Crackett, preferring the chance of being shot by his friend to the certainty of being taken by his enemies, fairly turned tail and darted off at full speed. Sykes clenched his teeth, took one look around, threw over the prostrate form of Oliver the cape in which he had been hurriedly muffled, ran along the front of the hedge as if to distract the attention of those behind from the spot where the boy lay, paused for a second before another hedge which met it at right angles, and whirling his pistol high into the air, cleared it at a bound and was gone. "'How, how there!' cried a tremulous voice in the rear. "'Pincher, Neptune, come here, come here!' The dogs, who, in common with their master, seemed to have no particular relish for the sport in which they were engaged, readily answered to the command. Three men, who had by this time advanced some distance into the field, stopped to take counsel together. "'My advice, or leastways, I should say, my orders is,' said the fattest man of the party, "'that we immediately go home again.' "'I am agreeable to anything which is agreeable to Mr. Giles.' said a shorter man, who was by no means of a slim figure, and who was very pale in the face and very polite, as frightened men frequently are. "'I shouldn't wish to appear ill-mannered, gentlemen,' said the third who had called the dogs back. "'Mr. Giles ought to now.' "'Certainly,' replied the shorter man, "'and whatever Mr. Giles says, it isn't our place to contradict him. Now, now I know my situation. Thank my stars I know my situation.' To tell the truth, the little man did seem to know his situation, and to know perfectly well that it was by no means a desirable one, for his teeth chattered in his head as he spoke. "'You're afraid, Brittles,' said Mr. Giles. "'I aren't,' said Brittles. "'You are,' said Giles. "'You're a falsehood, Mr. Giles,' said Brittles. "'You're a lie, Brittles,' said Mr. Giles. Now these four retorts arose from Mr. Giles's taunt and Mr. Giles's taunt had arisen from his indignation at having the responsibility of going home again, imposed upon himself under cover of a compliment. The third man brought the dispute to a close most philosophically. 
I'll tell you what it is, gentlemen, he said, with all the fried. Speak for yourself, sir, said Mr. Giles, who was the palest of the party. So I do, replied the man. It's natural and proper to be afraid under such circumstances. I am. So am I, said Brittles. Only there's no call to tell a man he is so bounceably. These frank admissions softened Mr. Giles, who had once owned that he was afraid, upon which they all three faced about and ran back again with the completest unanimity, until Mr. Giles, who had the shortest wind of the party, and was encumbered with a pitchfork, most handsomely insisted on stopping, to make an apology for his hastiness of speech. "'But it's wonderful,' said Mr. Giles, when he had explained, "'what a man will do when his blood is up. I should have committed murder.' I know I should, if we'd caught one of them rascals." As the other two were impressed with a similar presentiment, and as their blood like his had all gone down again, some speculation ensued upon the cause of this sudden change in their temperament. "'I know what it was,' said Mr. Giles. "'It was the gate.' "'I shouldn't wonder if it was,' exclaimed Brittles, catching at the idea. "'You may depend upon it,' said Giles, "'that that gate stopped the flow of the excitement. I felt all mine suddenly going away, as I was climbing over it." By a remarkable coincidence the other two had been visited with the same unpleasant sensation at that precise moment. It was quite obvious, therefore, that it was the gate, especially as there was no doubt regarding the time at which the change had taken place, because all three remembered that they had come in sight of the robbers at the instant of its occurrence. This dialogue was held between the two men who had surprised the burglars and a travelling tinker who had been sleeping in an outhouse, and who had been roused, together with his two mongrel curs, to join in the pursuit. Mr. Giles acted in the double capacity of butler and steward to the old lady of the mansion. Brittles was a lad of all work, who, having entered her service a mere child, was treated as a promising young boy still, though he was something past thirty. Encouraging each other with such converse as this, but keeping very close together notwithstanding, and looking apprehensively round whenever a fresh gust rattled through the boughs, the three men hurried back to a tree, behind which they had left their lantern, lest its light should inform the thieves in what direction to fire. Catching up the light they made the best of their way home at a good round trot, and long after their dusky forms had ceased to be discernible the light might have been seen twinkling and dancing in the distance like some exhalation of the damp and gloomy atmosphere through which it was swiftly borne. The air grew colder as the day came slowly on, and the mist rolled along the ground like a dense cloud of smoke. The grass was wet, the pathways and low places were all mire and water. The damp breath of an unwholesome wind went languidly by with a hollow moaning. Still Oliver lay motionless and insensible on the spot where Sykes had left him. Morning drew on apace. The air became more sharp and piercing as its first dull hue, the death of night rather than the birth of day, glimmered faintly in the sky. The objects which had looked dim and terrible in the darkness grew more and more defined, and gradually resolved into their familiar shapes. The rain came down, thick and fast, and pattered noisily among the leafless bushes. But Oliver felt it not, as it beat against him, for he still lay stretched helpless and unconscious on his bed of clay. At length a low cry of pain broke the stillness that prevailed, and uttering it the boy awoke. His left arm, rudely bandaged in a shawl, hung heavily and useless at his side. The bandage was saturated with blood. 
He was so weak that he could scarcely raise himself into a sitting posture. When he had done so, he looked feebly round for help, and groaned with pain. Trembling in every joint from cold and exhaustion, he made an effort to stand upright, but shuddering from head to foot fell prostrate on the ground. After a short return of the stupor in which he had been so long plunged, Oliver, urged by a creeping sickness at his heart, which seemed to warn him that if he lay there he must surely die, got upon his feet and essayed to walk. His head was dizzy, and he staggered to and fro like a drunken man. But he kept up nevertheless, and with his head drooping languidly on his breast, went stumbling onward he knew not whither. And now hosts of bewildering and confused ideas came crowding on his mind. He seemed to be still walking between Sykes and Crackett, who were angrily disputing, for the very words they said sounded in his ears, and when he caught his own attention, as it were, by making some violent effort to save himself from falling, he found that he was talking to them. Then he was alone with Sykes, plodding on as on the previous day, and as shadowy people passed them he felt the robber's grasp upon his wrist. Suddenly he started back at the report of firearms. There rose into the air loud cries and shouts, lights gleamed before his eyes, all was noise and tumult, as some unseen hand bore him hurriedly away. Through all these rapid visions there ran an undefined, uneasy consciousness of pain, which wearied and tormented him incessantly. Thus he staggered on, creeping almost mechanically between the bars of gates or through hedge-gaps as they came in his way, until he reached a road. Here the rain began to fall so heavily that it roused him. He looked about and saw that at no great distance there was a house which perhaps he could reach. Pitying his condition they might have compassion on him, and if they did not it would be better, he thought, to die near human beings than in the lonely open fields. He summoned up all his strength for one last trial and bent his faltering steps towards it. As he drew nearer to this house a feeling came over him that he had seen it before. He remembered nothing of its details, but the shape and aspect of the building seemed familiar to him. That garden wall! On the grass inside he had fallen on his knees last night and prayed the two men's mercy. It was the very house they had attempted to rob. Oliver felt such fear come over him when he recognised the place that for the instant he forgot the agony of his wound and thought only of flight. Flight! He could scarcely stand, and if he were in full possession of the best powers of a slight and youthful frame, whither could he fly? He pushed against the garden gate. It was unlocked and swung open on its hinges. He tottered across the lawn, climbed the steps, knocked faintly at the door, and his whole strength failing him sunk down against one of the pillars of the little portico. It happened that about this time Mr. Giles, Brittles, and the Tinker were recruiting themselves, after the fatigues and terrors of the night, with tea and sundries in the kitchen. Not that it was Mr. Giles's habit to admit to too great familiarity with the humbler servants, towards whom it was rather his wont to deport himself with a lofty affability, which, while it gratified, could not fail to remind them of his superior position in society. But death, fires, and burglary make all men equals, so Mr. Giles sat with his legs stretched out before the kitchen fender, leaning his left arm on the table, while with his right he illustrated a circumstantial and minute account of the robbery, to which his bearers, but especially the cook and housemaid who were of the party, listened with breathless interest. 
"'It was about half-past two, said Mr. Giles, "'or I wouldn't swear that it mightn't have been a little nearer three, "'when I woke up, and turning round in my bed, as it might be so—' "'Here Mr. Giles turned round in his chair "'and pulled the corner of the tablecloth over him to imitate bedclothes. "'I fancied I heard a noise.' At this point of the narrative the cook turned pale, and asked the housemaid to shut the door, who asked Brittles, who asked the tinker, who pretended not to hear. "'Hear the noise,' continued Mr. Giles. "'I says at first, this is illusion, and was composing myself off to sleep when I heard the noise again, distinct.' "'What sort of noise?' asked the cook. "'A kind of busting noise,' replied Mr. Giles, looking round him. "'More like the noise of powdering an iron bar on an upmeg grater,' suggested Brittles. "'It was when you heard it, sir,' rejoined Mr. Giles. "'But at this time it had a busting sound. I turned down the clothes,' continued Giles, rolling back the tablecloth, sat up in bed and listened. The cook and housemaid simultaneously ejaculated, "'Law!' and drew their chairs closer together. "'I heard it now quite apparent,' resumed Mr. Giles. "'Somebody,' I says, "'is forcing of a door or window. What's to be done? I'll call up the poor lad Brittles and save him from being murdered in his bed, or his throat,' says I, "'may be cut from his right ear to his left, without his ever knowing it.' Here all eyes were turned upon Brittles, who fixed his upon the speaker and stared at him with his mouth wide open and his face expressive of the most unmitigated horror. I tossed off the clothes, said Giles, throwing away the tablecloth, and looking very hard at the cook and housemaid, got softly out of bed, drew on a pair of— A lady's present, Mr. Giles, murmured the tinker. Of shoes, sir, said Giles, turning upon him and laying great emphasis on the word, seized the loaded pistol that always goes upstairs with the plate-basket, and walked on tiptoes to his room. Brittles, I says, when I had woke him, don't be frightened. So you did observed Brittles in a low voice. "'We're dead men, I think, Brittles,' says I, continued Giles. "'But don't be frightened.' "'Was he frightened?' asked the cock. "'Not a bit of it,' replied Mr. Giles. "'He was as firm—ah, pretty near as firm as I was.' "'I should have died at once, I'm sure, if it had been me,' observed the housemaid. "'You're a woman,' retorted Brittles, plucking up a little. "'Brittles is right,' said Mr. Giles, nodding his head approvingly. "'From a woman nothing else was to be expected. "'We, being men, took a dark lantern that was standing on Brittles' hob, "'and groped our way downstairs in the pitch dark, as it might be so.' Mr. Giles had risen from his seat, and taken two steps with his eyes shut, to accompany his description with appropriate action. When he started violently, in common with the rest of the company, and hurried back to his chair, the cook and housemaid screamed. "'It was a knock,' said Mr. Giles, assuming perfect serenity. "'Open the door, somebody.' Nobody moved. "'It seems a strange sort of thing, a knock coming at such a time in the morning,' said Mr. Giles, surveying the pale faces which surrounded him, and looking very blank himself. "'But the door must be opened. Do you hear? Somebody?' Mr. Giles, as he spoke, looked at Brittles, but that young man, being naturally modest, probably considered himself nobody, and so held that the inquiry could not have any application to him. At all events he tendered no reply. Mr. Giles directed an appealing glance at the tinker, but he had suddenly fallen asleep. The women were out of the question. "'If Brittles would rather open the door in the presence of witnesses,' said Mr. Giles, after a short silence, 
I am ready to make one. So am I, said the tinker, waking up as suddenly as he had fallen asleep. Brittles capitulated on these terms, and the party being somewhat reassured by the discovery, made on throwing open the shutters, that it was now broad day, took their way upstairs, with the dogs in front. The two women who were afraid to stay below brought up the rear. By the advice of Mr. Giles they all talked very loud, to warn any evil-disposed person outside that they were strong in numbers, and by a master-stroke of policy, originating in the brain of the same ingenious gentleman, the dogs' tails were well pinched in the hall, to make them bark savagely. These precautions having been taken, Mr. Giles held on fast by the tinker's arm, to prevent his running away, as he pleasantly said, and gave the word of command to open the door. Brittles obeyed. The group, peeping timorously over each other's shoulders, beheld no more formidable object than poor little Oliver Twist, speechless and exhausted, who raised his heavy eyes and mutely solicited their compassion. "'A boy!' exclaimed Mr. Giles valiantly, pushing the tinker into the background. "'What's the matter with the—eh, why, Brittles, look here, don't you know?' Brittles, who had got behind the door to open it, no sooner saw Oliver than he uttered a loud cry. Mr. Giles, seizing the boy by one leg and one arm, fortunately not the broken limb, lugged him straight into the hall and deposited him at full length on the floor thereof. "'Here he is!' bawled Giles, calling in a state of great excitement up the staircase. "'Here's one of the thieves, ma'am! Here's a thief, miss! Wounded, miss! I shot him, miss! And Brittles held the light!' "'In a lantern, miss!' cried Brittles, applying one hand to the side of his mouth, so that his voice might travel the better. The two women-servants ran upstairs to carry the intelligence that Mr. Giles had captured a robber, and the tinker busied himself in endeavouring to restore Oliver, lest he should die before he could be hanged. In the midst of all this noise and commotion there was heard a sweet female voice, which quelled it in an instant. "'Giles!' whispered the voice from the stairhead. "'I'm here, miss,' replied Giles. "'Don't be frightened, miss. I ain't much injured. He didn't make a very desperate resistance, miss. I was soon too many for him.' "'Hush,' replied the young lady. "'You frightened my aunt as much as the thieves did. Is the poor creature much hurt?' "'Wounded desperate, miss,' replied Giles, with indescribable complacency. "'He looks as if he was a-goin', miss,' bawled Brittles, in the same manner as before. "'Wouldn't you like to come and look at him, miss, in case he should?' "'Hush, pray, there's a good man,' rejoined the lady. "'Wait quietly only one instant while I speak to Aunt.' With a footstep as soft and gentle as the voice, the speaker tripped away. She soon returned with the direction that the wounded person was to be carried carefully upstairs to Mr. Giles's room and that Brittles was to saddle the pony and betake himself instantly to Chertsey, from which place he was to dispatch with all speed a constable and doctor. "'But won't you take one look at him first, miss?' asked Mr. Giles, with as much pride as if Oliver was some bird of rare plumage that he had skilfully brought down. Oh, "'Not one little peep, miss?' "'Not now for the world,' replied the young lady. "'Poor fellow! Oh, treat him kindly, Giles, for my sake!' The old servant looked up at the speaker as she turned away, with a glance as proud and admiring as if she had been his own child. Then, bending over Oliver, he helped to carry him upstairs with the care and solicitude of a woman. End of chapter 28
Chapter twenty nine of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Has an introductory account of the inmates of the house to which Oliver is restored. In a handsome room, though its furniture had rather the air of old-fashioned comfort than of modern elegance, there sat two ladies at a well-spread breakfast-table. Mr. Giles, dressed with scrupulous care in a full suit of black, was in attendance upon them. He had taken his station some half-way between the sideboard and the breakfast-table, and with his body drawn up to its full height, his head thrown back and inclined the merest trifle on one side, his left leg advanced and his right hand thrust into his waistcoat, while his left hung down by his side, grasping a waiter, looked like one who laboured under a very agreeable sense of his own merits and importance. Of the two ladies one was well advanced in years, but the high-backed oaken chair in which she sat was not more upright than she. Dressed with the utmost nicety and precision in a quaint mixture of bygone costume, with some slight concessions to the prevailing taste which rather served to point the old style pleasantly than to impair its effect, she sat in a stately manner with her hands folded on the table before her. Her eyes, and age had dimmed but little of their brightness, were attentively upon her young companion. The younger lady was in the lovely bloom and springtime of womanhood, at that age when, if ever angels be for God's good purposes enthroned in mortal forms, they may be, without impiety, supposed to abide in such as hers. She was not past seventeen cast in so slight and exquisite a mould, so mild and gentle, so pure and beautiful, that earth seemed not her element, nor its rough creatures her fit companions. The very intelligence that shone in her deep blue eyes, and was stamped upon her noble head, seemed scarcely of her age, or of the world, and yet the changing expression of sweetness and good humour, the thousand lights that played about the face, and left no shadow there, above all the smile the cheerful happy smile were made for home and fireside peace and happiness she was busily engaged in the little offices of the table chancing to raise her eyes as the older lady was regarding her she playfully put back her hair which was simply braided on the forehead and threw into her beaming look such an expression of affection and artless loveliness that blessed spirits might have smiled to look upon her and brittles has been gone upwards of an hour has he asked the old lady after a pause. "'An hour and twelve minutes, ma'am,' replied Giles, referring to a silver watch which he drew forth by a black ribbon. "'He is always slow,' remarked the old lady. "'Brittles always was a slow boy, ma'am,' replied the attendant, and seeing by the by that Brittles had been a slow boy for upwards of thirty years, there appeared no great probability of his ever being a fast one. "'He gets worse instead of better, I think,' said the elder lady. "'It is very inexcusable of him if he stops to play with any other boys,' said the young lady, smiling. Mr. Giles was apparently considering the propriety of indulging in a respectful smile himself when a gig drove up to the garden gate, out of which there jumped a fat gentleman who ran straight up to the door and who, getting quickly into the house by some mysterious process, burst into the room and nearly overturned Mr. Giles and the breakfast-table together. "'I never heard of such a thing!' exclaimed the fat gentleman. "'My dear Mrs. Maylie, bless my soul, in the silence of the night, too! I never heard of such a thing!' With these expressions of condolence the fat gentleman shook hands with both ladies, and drawing up a chair inquired how they found themselves. "'You ought to be dead! 
"'Positively dead with the fright,' said the fat gentleman. "'Why didn't you send? Bless me, my man should have come in a minute, and so would I, and my assistant would have been delighted, or anybody, I'm sure, under such circumstances. Oh, dear, dear, so unexpected! In the silence of the night, too!' The doctor seemed especially troubled by the fact of the robbery having been unexpected, and attempted in the night-time, as if it were the established custom of gentlemen in the house-breaking way to transact business at noon, and to make an appointment by post a day or two previous. "'And you, Miss Rose,' said the doctor, turning to the young lady, "'I—oh, very much so indeed,' said Rose, interrupting him. "'But there is a poor creature upstairs whom Aunt wishes you to see.' "'Ah, to be sure.' replied the doctor, so there is. That was your handiwork, Giles, I understand. Mr. Giles, who had been feverishly putting the teacups to rights, blushed very red, and said that he had had the honour. Honour, eh? said the doctor. Well, I don't know. Perhaps it's as honourable to hit a thief in the back kitchen as to hit your man at twelve paces. Fancy that he fired in the air, and you fought a jewel, Giles. Mr. Giles, who thought this light treatment of the matter an unjust attempt at diminishing his glory, answered respectfully that it was not for the like of him to judge about that, but that he rather thought it was no joke to the opposite party. "'Gad, that's true,' said the doctor. "'Where is he? Show me the way. I'll look in again as I come down, Mrs. Maylie. That's the little window he got in at, eh? Well, I couldn't have believed it.' Talking all the way, he followed Mr. Giles upstairs. And while he is going upstairs, the reader may be informed that Mr. Losburn, a surgeon in the neighbourhood, known through the circuit of ten miles round as the doctor, had grown fat more from good humour than from good living, and was as kind and hearty and withal as eccentric an old bachelor as will be found in five times that space by any explorer alive. The doctor was absent much longer than either he or the ladies had anticipated. A large flat box was fetched out of the gig, and a bedroom bell was rung very often, and the servants ran up and down stairs perpetually, from which tokens it was justly concluded that something important was going on above. At length he returned, and in reply to an anxious inquiry after his patient looked very mysterious, and closed the door carefully. "'This is a very extraordinary thing, Mrs. Maylie,' said the doctor, standing with his back to the door, as if to keep it shut. "'He is not in danger, I hope.' said the old lady. "'Why, that would not be an extraordinary thing under the circumstances,' replied the doctor, "'though I don't think he is. Have you seen the thief?' "'No,' rejoined the old lady. "'Nor heard anything about him?' "'No.' "'I beg your pardon, ma'am,' interposed Giles, "'but I was going to tell you about him when Dr. Losburn came in.' The fact was that Giles had not at first been able to bring his mind to the avowal that he had only shot a boy. Such commendations had been bestowed upon his bravery that he could not for the life of him help postponing the explanation for a few delicious minutes, during which he had flourished at the very zenith of a brief reputation for undaunted courage. "'Rose wished to see the man,' said Mrs. Maylie, "'but I wouldn't hear of it.' <laughs> rejoined the doctor. "'There's nothing very alarming in his appearance.' "'Have you any objection to see him in my presence?' "'If it be necessary,' replied the old lady, "'certainly not.' "'Then I think it is necessary,' said the doctor. "'At all events, I'm quite sure you would deeply regret not having done so if you postponed it. He is perfectly quiet and comfortable now. Allow me, Miss Rose, will you permit me?' "'Not the slightest fear, I pledge you my honour. End of chapter 29
Chapter Thirty of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Relates what Oliver's new visitors thought of him. With many loquacious assurances that they would be agreeably surprised in the aspect of the criminal, the doctor drew the young lady's arm through one of his and offering his disengaged hand to Mrs. Maylie, led them with much ceremony and stateliness upstairs. Now said the doctor in a whisper, as he softly turned the handle of the bedroom door. Let us hear what you think of him. He has not been shaved very recently, but he don't look at all ferocious notwithstanding. Stop, though. Let me first see that he is in visiting order. Stepping before them, he looked into the room. Motioning them to advance, he closed the door when they had entered, and gently drew back the curtains of the bed. Upon it, in lieu of the dogged, black-visaged ruffian they had expected to behold, there lay a mere child, worn with pain and exhaustion, and sunk into a deep sleep. His wounded arm, bound up and splintered, was crossed upon his chest. His head reclined upon the other arm, which was half hidden by his long hair, as it streamed over the pillow. The honest gentleman held the curtain in his hand and looked on for a minute or so in silence. Whilst he was watching the patient thus, the younger lady glided softly past, and seating herself in a chair by the bedside, gathered Oliver's hair from his face. As she stooped over him, her tears fell upon his forehead. The boy stirred and smiled in his sleep, as though these marks of pity and compassion had awakened some pleasant dream of a love and affection he had never known. Thus a strain of gentle music, or the rippling of water in a silent place, or the odour of a flower, or the mention of a familiar word, will sometimes call up sudden dim remembrances of scenes that never were in this life, which vanish like a breath, which some brief memory of a happier existence long gone by would seem to have awakened, which no voluntary exertion of the mind can ever recall. "'What can this mean?' exclaimed the elder lady. This poor child can never have been the pupil of robbers. Vice, said the surgeon, replacing the curtain, takes up her abode in many temples, and who can say that a fair outside shall not enshrine her? But at so early an age, urged Rose. My dear young lady, rejoined the surgeon, mournfully shaking his head, crime like death is not confined to the old and withered alone. The youngest and fairest are too often its chosen victims. But— can you, oh, can you really believe that this delicate boy has been the voluntary associate of the worst outcasts of society? said Rose. The surgeon shook his head in a manner which intimated that he feared it was very possible, and observing that they might disturb the patient, led the way into an adjoining apartment. But even if he has been wicked, pursued Rose, think how young he is. Think that he may never have known a mother's love or the comfort of a home, that ill-usage and blows or the want of bread may have driven him to a herd with men who have forced him to guilt. Aunt, dear aunt, for mercy's sake think of this before you let them drag this sick child to a prison, which in any case must be the grave of all his chances of amendment. Oh, as you love me, and know that I have never felt the want of parents in your goodness and affection, but that I might have done so and might have been equally helpless and unprotected with this poor child, have pity upon him before it is too late." "'My dear love,' said the elder lady, as she folded the weeping girl to her bosom, "'do you think I would harm a hair of his head?' "'Oh, no,' replied Rose eagerly. "'No, surely,' said the old lady. 
my days are drawing to their close, and may mercy be shown to me as I show it to others. What can I do to save him, sir?' "'Let me think, ma'am,' said the doctor. "'Let me think.' Mr. Losburn thrust his hands into his pockets and took several turns up and down the room, often stopping and balancing himself on his toes and frowning frightfully. After various exclamations of, "'I've got it now!' and no i haven't and as many renewals of the walking and frowning he at length made a dead halt and spoke as follows i think if you give me a full and unlimited commission to bully giles and that little boy brittles i can manage it giles is a faithful fellow and an old servant i know but you can make it up to him in a thousand ways and reward him for being such a good shot besides you don't object to that unless there is some other way of preserving the child replied mrs Maylie. "'There is no other,' said the doctor. "'No other. Take my word for it.' "'Then my aunt invests you with full power,' said Rose, smiling through her tears. "'But pray, don't be harder upon the poor fellows than is indispensably necessary.' "'You seem to think,' retorted the doctor, "'that everybody is disposed to be hard-hearted to-day except yourself, Miss Rose. I only hope, for the sake of the rising male sex generally, that you may be found in as vulnerable and soft-hearted a mood by the first eligible young fellow who appeals to your compassion.' and i wish i were a young fellow that i might avail myself on the spot of such a favourable opportunity for doing so as the present you are as great a boy as poor brittles himself returned rose blushing well said the doctor laughing heartily that's no very difficult matter to return to this boy the great point of our agreement is yet to come he will wake in an hour or so i dare say and although i have told that thick-headed constable fellow downstairs that he mustn't be moved or spoken to on peril of his life i think we may converse with him without danger now i make this stipulation that i shall examine him in your presence and that if from what he says we can judge and i can show to the satisfaction of your cool reason that he is a real and thorough bad one which is more than possible he shall be left to his fate without any further interference on my part at all events oh no aunt entreated rose oh yes aunt said the doctor is it a bargain he cannot be hardened in vice said rose it is impossible very good retorted the doctor then so much the more reason for acceding to my proposition finally the treaty was entered into and the parties thereunto sat down to wait with some impatience until oliver should awake the patience of the two ladies was destined to undergo a longer trial than mr losburn had led them to expect for hour after hour passed on and still oliver slumbered heavily it was evening indeed before the kind-hearted doctor brought them the intelligence that he was at length sufficiently restored to be spoken to the boy was very ill he said and weak from the loss of blood but his mind was so troubled with anxiety to disclose something that he deemed it better to give him the opportunity than to insist upon his remaining quiet until next morning which he should otherwise have done the conference was a long one oliver told them all his simple history and was often compelled to stop by pain and want of strength it was a solemn thing to hear in the darkened room the feeble voice of the sick child recounting a weary catalogue of evils and calamities which hard men had brought upon him oh if when we oppress and grind our fellow-creatures we bestowed but one thought on the dark evidences of human error which like dense and heavy clouds are rising slowly it is true but not less surely to heaven to pour their after vengeance on our heads if we heard but one instant in imagination the deep testimony of dead men's voices which no power can stifle and no pride shut out 
where would be the injury and injustice, the suffering, misery, cruelty, and wrong that each day's life brings with it? Oliver's pillow was smoothed by gentle hands that night, and loveliness and virtue watched him as he slept. He felt calm and happy, and could have died without a murmur. The momentous interview was no sooner concluded, and Oliver composed to rest again, than the doctor, after wiping his eyes and condemning them for being weak all at once, betook himself downstairs to open upon Mr. Giles, and finding nobody about the parlours, it occurred to him that he could perhaps originate the proceedings with better effect in the kitchen. So into the kitchen he went. There were assembled in that lower house of the domestic parliament the women-servants, Mr. Brittles, Mr. Giles, the tinker, who had received a special invitation to regale himself for the remainder of the day, in consideration of his services, and the constable. The latter gentleman had a large staff, a large head, large features, and large half-boots, and he looked as if he had been taking a proportionate allowance of ale, as indeed he had. The adventures of the previous night were still under discussion, for Mr. Giles was expatiating upon his presence of mind when the doctor entered. Mr. Brittles, with a mug of ale in his hand, was corroborating everything before his superior said it. Now sit still, said the doctor, waving his hand. Thank you, sir, said Mr. Giles. Mrs. wished some ale to be given out, sir, and as I felt no ways inclined for my own little room, sir, and was disposed for company. I am taking mine among em here." Brittles headed a low murmur, by which the ladies and gentlemen generally were understood to express the gratification they derived from Mr. Giles's condescension. Mr. Giles looked round with a patronizing air, as much as to say that so long as they behaved properly he would never desert them. "'How is the patient to-night, sir?' asked Mr. Giles. "'So-so,' returned the doctor. "'I am afraid you have got yourself into a scrape there, Mr. Giles.' "'I hope you don't mean to say, sir,' said Giles, trembling, "'that he's going to die. "'If I thought it, I should never be happy again. "'I wouldn't cut a boy off. "'No, not even Brittles there. "'Not for all the plate in the county, sir.' Uh, "'That's not the point,' said the doctor mysteriously. "'Mr. Giles, are you a Protestant?' "'Yes, sir. "'I hope so,' faltered Giles, who had turned very pale. "'And what are you, boy?' said the doctor, turning sharply upon Brittles. "'Lord, bless me, sir,' replied Brittle, starting violently. "'I'm the same as Mr. Giles, sir.' "'Then tell me this,' said the doctor. "'Both of you, both of you, are you going to take upon yourself to swear that that boy upstairs is the boy that was put through the little window last night? Out with it, come. We are prepared for you.' The doctor, who was universally considered one of the best-tempered creatures on earth, made this demand in such a dreadful tone of anger that Giles and Brittles, who were considerably muddled by ale and excitement, stared at each other in a state of stupefaction. "'Pay attention to the reply, constable, will you?' said the doctor, shaking his forefinger with great solemnity of manner, and tapping the bridge of his nose with it, to bespeak the exercise of that worthy's utmost acuteness. Something may come of this before long.' The constable looked as wise as he could, and took up his staff of office, which had been reclining indolently in the chimney-corner. "'It's a simple question of identity, you will observe,' said the doctor. <coughs> "'That's what it is, sir,' replied the constable, coughing with great violence, for he had finished his ale in a hurry, and some of it had gone the wrong way. "'Here's the house broken into,' said the doctor, "'and a couple of men catch one moment's glimpse of a boy in the midst of gunpowder smoke, and in all the distraction of alarm and darkness.' 
here's a boy comes to the very same house next morning and because he happens to have his arm tied up these men lay violent hands upon him by doing which they place his life in great danger and swear he is the thief now the question is whether these men were justified by the fact if not in what situation do they place themselves the constable nodded profoundly he said if that wasn't law he would be glad to know what was i ask you again thundered the doctor are you on your solemn oaths able to identify that boy brittles looked doubtfully at mr giles mr giles looked doubtfully at brittles the constable put his hand behind his ear to catch the reply the two women and the tinker leaned forward to listen the doctor glanced keenly round when a ring was heard at the gate and at the same moment the sound of wheels it's the runners cried brittles to all appearance much relieved the what exclaimed the doctor aghast in his turn the bow street officer sir replied brittles taking up a candle me and mr giles sent for him this morning what cried the doctor yes replied brittles i sent a message up by the coachman and i only wondered they weren't here before sir well, you did did you then confound your slow coaches down here that's all said the doctor walking away End of chapter thirty chapter thirty one of oliver twist by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tige hines involves a critical position who's that inquired brittles opening the door a little way with the chain up and peeping out shading the candle with his hand open the door replied a man outside it's the officer from bow street as was sent to-day much comforted by this assurance brittles opened the door to its full width and confronted a portly man in a greatcoat who walked in without saying anything more and wiped his shoes on the mat as coolly as if he lived there just send somebody to relieve my mate will you young man said the officer he's in the gig a mind in the prad have you got a couch here that you could put it up in for five or ten minutes brittles replying in the affirmative and pointing out the building the portly man stepped back to the garden gate and helped his companion to put up the gig while brittles lighted them in a state of great admiration this done they returned to the house and being shown into a parlour took off their greatcoats and hats and showed like what they were the man who had knocked at the door was a stout personage of middle height aged about fifty with shiny black hair cropped pretty close half whiskers a round face and sharp eyes the other was a red-headed bony man in top-boots with a rather ill-favoured countenance and a turned-up sinister-looking nose tell your governor that bladders and duff is here will you said the stouter man smoothing down his hair and laying a pair of handcuffs on the table no good evening master can i have a word or two with you in private if you please this was addressed to mr losburn who now made his appearance that gentleman motioning brittles to retire brought in the two ladies and shut the door this is the lady of the house said mr losburn motioning towards mrs maylie mr blathers made a bow being desired to sit down he put his hat on the floor and taking a chair motioned to duff to do the same the latter gentleman who did not appear quite so much accustomed to good society or quite so much at his ease in it one of the two seated himself after undergoing several muscular affections of the limbs and put the head of a stick into his mouth with some embarrassment now 
with regard to this here robbery master said blathers what are the circumstances mr losburn who appeared desirous of gaining time recounted them at great length and with much circumlocution messrs blathers and duff looked very knowing meanwhile and occasionally exchanged a nod i can't say for certain till i see the work of course said blathers but my opinion at once is though i don't mind committing myself to that extent that this wasn't done by a yokel eh duff certainly not replied duff and translating the word yokel for the benefit of the ladies i apprehend your meaning to be that this attempt was not made by a countryman said mr losburn with a smile that's it master replied blathers this is all about the robbery is it all replied the doctor now what is this about this here boy that the servants are talking on said blathers nothing at all replied the doctor one of the frightened servants chose to take it into his head that he had something to do with this attempt to break into the house but it's nonsense sheer absurdity very easy disposed of if it is remarked duff what he says is quite correct observed blathers nodding his head in a confirmatory way and playing carelessly with the handcuffs as if they were a pair of castanets who is the boy what account does he give of himself where did he come from he didn't drop out of the clouds did he master of course not replied the doctor with a nervous glance at the two ladies i know his whole history but we can talk about that presently you would like first to see the place where the thieves made their attempt i suppose oh, certainly rejoined mr blathers we had better inspect the premises first and examine the servants afterwards that's the usual way of doing business lights were then procured and messrs blathers and duff attended by the native constable brittles giles and everybody else in short went into the little room at the end of the passage and looked out at the window and afterwards went round by way of the lawn and looked in at the window and after that had a candle handed out to inspect the shutters with and after that a lantern to trace the footsteps with and after that a pitchfork to poke the bushes with this done amidst the breathless interest of all beholders they came in again and mr giles and brittles were put through a melodramatic representation of their share in the previous night's adventures which they performed some six times over contradicting each other in not more than one important respect the first time and in not more than a dozen the last this consummation being arrived at blathers and duff cleared the room and held a long council together compared with which for secrecy and solemnity a consultation of great doctors on the knottiest point in medicine would be mere child's play meanwhile the doctor walked up and down the next room in a very uneasy state and mrs maylie and rose looked on with anxious faces upon my word he said making a halt after a great number of very rapid turns i hardly know what to do surely said rose the poor child's story faithfully repeated to these men will be sufficient to exonerate him i doubt it my dear young lady said the doctor shaking his head i don't think it would exonerate him either with them or with the legal functionaries of a higher grade what is he after all they would say a runaway judged by mere worldly considerations and probabilities his story is a very doubtful one you believe it surely interrupted rose i believe it strange as it is and perhaps i may be an old fool for doing so rejoined the doctor but i don't think it is exactly the tale for a practical police officer nevertheless why not demanded rose because my pretty cross-examiner replied the doctor because viewed with their eyes there are many ugly points about it 
he could only prove the parts that look ill, and none of those that look well. Confound the fellows, they will have the why and the wherefores, and will take nothing for granted. On his own showing, you see, he has been the companion of thieves for some time past. He has been carried to a police officer, on a charge of picking a gentleman's pocket. He has been taken away forcibly from that gentleman's house, to a place which he cannot describe or point out, and of the situation of which he has not the remotest idea. He is brought down to Chertsey by men who seem to have taken a violent fancy to him, whether he will or no and he is put through a window to rob a house, and then, just at the very moment when he is going to alarm the inmates, and so do the very thing that would set him all to rights, there rushes into the way a blundering dog of a half-bred butler, and shoots him, as if on purpose to prevent his doing any good for himself. Don't you see all this?' "'I see it, of course,' replied Rose, smiling at the doctor's impetuosity. "'But still, I do not see anything in it to criminate the poor child.' "'No,' replied the doctor. Of course not. Bless the bright eyes of your sex. They never see, whether for good or bad, more than one side of any question, and that is always the one which first presents itself to them." Having given vent to this result of experience, the doctor put his hands into his pockets and walked up and down the room with even greater rapidity than before. "'The more I think of it,' said the doctor, "'the more I see that it will occasion endless trouble and difficulty if we put these men in possession of the boy's real story. I am certain it will not be believed. And even if they can do nothing to him in the end, still the dragging it forward and giving publicity to all the doubts that will be cast upon it must interfere materially with your benevolent plan of rescuing him from misery." "'Oh, what is to be done?' cried Rose. "'Dear, dear, why did they send for those people?' "'Why, indeed!' exclaimed Mrs. Maylie. "'I would not have had them here for the world.' "'All I know is,' said Mr. Losburn at last, sitting down with a kind of desperate calmness, "'that we must try and carry it off with a bold face. The object is a good one, and that must be our excuse. The boy has strong symptoms of fever upon him, and is in no condition to be talked to any more. That's one comfort. We must make the best of it, and if bad be the best, it's no fault of ours. Come in.' "'Well, master.' said Blathers, entering the room, followed by his colleague, and making the door fast before he said any more. "'This warn't a put-up thing.' "'And what the devil's a put-up thing?' demanded the doctor impatiently. "'We call it a put-up robbery, ladies,' said Blathers, turning to them, as if he pitied their ignorance, but had contempt for the doctors, when the servants is in it. "'Nobody suspects them in this case,' said Mrs. Maylie. "'Very likely not, ma'am,' replied Blathers. But they might have been in it, for all that." "'More likely on that wery account,' said Duff. "'We find it was a town hand,' said Blathers, continuing his report, "'for the style of the work is first-rate.' "'Very pretty indeed it is,' remarked Duff in an undertone. "'There was two of em in it,' continued Blathers, "'and they had a boy with em. That's plain from the size of the window. That's all to be said at present. We'll see this lad you've got upstairs at once, if you please." "'Perhaps they will take something to drink first, Mrs. Maylie,' said the doctor, his face brightening as if some new thought had occurred to him. "'Oh, to be sure!' exclaimed Rose eagerly. "'You shall have it immediately, if you will.' "'Why, thank you, miss,' said Blathers, drawing his coat-sleeves across his mouth. "'It's dry work, this sort of duty. Anything that's handy, miss, don't put yourself out of the way on our accounts. What shall it be?' asked the doctor, following the young lady to the sideboard. "'A little drop of spirits, master, if it's all the same,' 
replied Blathers. "'It's a cow droid from London, ma'am, and I always find that spirits comes home warmer to the feelings.' This interesting communication was addressed to Mrs. Maylie, who received it very graciously. While it was being conveyed to her, the doctor slipped out of the room. "'Ah!' said Mr. Blathers, not holding his wine-glass by the stem, but grasping the bottom between the thumb and forefinger of his left hand, and placing it in front of his chest. "'I have seen a good many pieces of business like this in my time, ladies.' "'That crack down in the back lane at Edmonton, Blathers,' said Duff, assisting his colleague's memory. "'That was something in this way, weren't it?' rejoined Blathers. "'That was done by Conky Chickweed, that was.' "'You always gave that to him,' replied Duff. "'It was the family pet, I tell you. Conky hadn't any more to do with it than I had.' "'Get out,' retorted Blathers. "'I know better.' Do you mind that time when Corky was robbed of his money, though? What a start that was! Better than any novel book I ever see." "'What was that?' inquired Rose, anxious to encourage any symptoms of good humour in the unwelcome visitors. "'It was a robbery, miss, that hardly anybody would have been down upon,' said Blathers. "'This here Conky Chickweed.' "'Conky means nosy, ma'am,' interposed Duff. "'Of course the lady knows that, don't she?' demanded Blathers, always interrupting you, our partner. This here conky chickweed, miss, kept a public-house over Battlebridge way, and he had a cellar where a good many young lords went to see cock-fighting and badger-drawn and that, and a very intellectual manner the sports was conducted in, for I've seen em often. He weren't one of the family at that time, and one night he was robbed of three hundred and twenty-seven guineas in a canvas bag that was stole out of his bedroom in the dead of night by a tall man with a black patch over his eye, who had concealed himself under the bed, and after committing the robbery jumped slap out of the window, which was only a story high. He was very quick about it. But Conky was quick too, for he fired a blunderbuss after him, and roused the neighbourhood. They set up a hue and cry directly, and when they came to look about him found that Conky had hit the robber, for there was traces of blood all the way to some palings a good distance off and there they lost him. However, he had made off with the blunt, and consequently the name of Mr. Chickweed, Lysand Whittler, appeared in the Gazette among the other bankrupts, and all manner of benefits and subscriptions, and I don't know what all, was got up for the poor man. It was in a very low state of mind about his loss, and went up and down the streets for three or four days, a-pulling of his hair in such a desperate manner that many people was afraid he might be going to make away with himself. One day he came up to the office all in a hurry, and had a private interview with a magistrate, who, after a great deal of talk, rings the bell and orders Jim Spires in, Jim was an active officer, and tells him to go and assist Mr. Chickweed in apprehending the man as robbed his house. "'I see him, Spires,' said Chickweed, "'pass my house yesterday morning.' "'Why didn't you up and collar him?' says Spires. "'I was so struck of a heap you might have fractured my skull with a toothpick," says the other man. But we're sure to have him, for between ten and eleven o'clock at night he passed again. Aspires no sooner heard this than he put some clean linen and a comb in his pocket, in case he should have to stop a day or two, and away he goes and sets himself down at the public-house windows behind the little red curtain with his hat on, all ready to bolt out at a moment's notice. He was smoking his pipe here late at night, when all of a sudden Chickweed roars out, "'Here he is! Stop! Thief! Murder!' Jim Spires dashes out, and there he sees Chickweed a-tearin' down the street in full cry. 
away goes spires on goes chickweed round turns the people everybody roars out thieves and chickweed himself keeps on shouting all the time like mad spires loses sight of him a minute as he turns a corner shoots round sees a little crowd dives in which is the man damn me said chickweed i've lost him again it was a remarkable occurrence but he weren't to be seen nowhere so they went back to the public house next morning spires took his old place and looked out from behind the curtain for a tall man with a black patch over his eye till his own two eyes ached again at last he couldn't help shutting them to ease him a minute and the very moment he did so he hears chickweed a-roaring out here he is off he starts once more with chickweed halfway down the street ahead of him and after twice as long a run as yesterday's one the man's lost again this was done once or twice more till one half of the neighbours gave out that mr chickweed had been robbed by the devil who was playing tricks with him afterwards and the other half that poor mr chickweed had gone mad with grief what did jim spires say inquired the doctor who had returned to the room shortly after the commencement of the story jim spires resumed the officer for a long time said nothing at all and listened to everything without seeming to which showed he understood his business but one morning he walked into the bar and taking out a snuff-box says chickweed i found out who has done this here robbery have you said chickweed oh my dear spires only let me have vengeance and i'll die contented oh my dear spires where is the villain come said spires offering him a pinch of snuff none of that gammon you did it yourself so he had and a good bit of money he had made by it too and nobody would never have found out if he hadn't been so precious anxious to keep up appearances said mr blathers putting down his wine-glass and clinking the handcuffs together very curious indeed observed the doctor now if you please you can walk upstairs if you please sir returned blathers Closely following Mr. Losburn, the two officers ascended to Oliver's bedroom, Mr. Giles preceding the party with a lighted candle. Oliver had been dozing, but looked worse and was more feverish than he had appeared yet. Being assisted by the doctor, he managed to sit up in the bed for a minute or so, and looked at the strangers without at all understanding what was going forward, in fact, without seeming to recollect where he was or what had been passing this said mr losburn speaking softly but with great vehemence notwithstanding this is the lad who being accidentally wounded by a spring-gun in some boyish trespass on mr what do you call him's ground at the back here comes to the house for assistance this morning and is immediately laid hold of and maltreated by that ingenious gentleman with a candle in his hand who has placed his life in considerable danger as i can professionally certify messrs blathers and duff looked at mr giles as he was thus recommended to their notice the bewildered butler gazed from them towards Oliver and from Oliver towards Mr. Losburn, with a most ludicrous mixture of fear and perplexity. "'You don't mean to deny that, I suppose,' said the doctor, laying Oliver gently down again. "'It was all done for the—for the best, sir,' answered Giles. "'I am sure I thought it was the boy, or I wouldn't have meddled with him. I am not of an inhuman disposition, sir.' "'Thought it was what boy?' inquired the senior officer the housebreaker's boy sir replied giles they-they they certainly had a boy well do you think so now inquired blathers think what now replied giles looking vacantly at his questioner think it's the same boy stupid head rejoined blathers impatiently 
"'I don't know. I really don't know,' said Giles, with a rueful countenance. "'I couldn't swear to him.' "'What do you think?' asked Mr. Blathers. "'I don't know what to think,' replied poor Giles. "'I don't think he is the boy. Indeed, I am almost certain that it isn't. You know it can't be.' "'Has this man been a-drinking, sir?' inquired Blathers, turning to the doctor. "'What a precious mud-leaded chap you are!' said Duff, addressing Mr. Giles with supreme contempt. Mr. Losburn had been feeling the patient's pulse during this short dialogue, but he now rose from the chair by the bedside and remarked that if the officers had any doubts upon the subject, they would perhaps like to step into the next room and have brittles before them. Acting upon the suggestion, they adjourned to a neighbouring apartment, where Mr. Brittles, being called in, involved himself and his respected superior in such a wonderful maze of fresh contradictions and impossibilities as tended to throw no particular light on anything but the fact of his own strong mystification, except indeed his declarations that he shouldn't know the real boy if he were put before him that instant, that he had only taken Oliver to be he because Mr. Giles had said it was he and that Mr. Giles had five minutes previously admitted in the kitchen, that he began to be very much afraid he had been a little too hasty. Among other ingenious surmises the question then was raised whether Mr. Giles had really hit anybody, and upon examination of the fellow-pistol to that which he had fired, it turned out to have no more destructive loading than gunpowder and brown paper, a discovery which made a considerable impression on everybody but the doctor, who had drawn the ball about ten minutes before. Upon no one, however, did it make a greater impression than on Mr. Giles himself, who, after labouring for some hours under the fear of having mortally wounded a fellow-creature, eagerly caught at this new idea, and favoured it to the utmost. Finally, the officers, without troubling themselves very much about Oliver, left the churchy constable in the house, and took up their rest for that night in the town, promising to return the next morning. With the next morning there came a rumour that two men and a boy were in the cage at Kingston, who had been apprehended overnight under suspicious circumstances, and to Kingston Messrs. Blathers and Duff journeyed accordingly. The suspicious circumstances, however, resolving themselves on investigation into one fact, that they had been discovered sleeping under a haystack, which, although a great crime, is only punishable by imprisonment, and is, in the merciful eye of the English law, and its comprehensive love of all the king's subjects, held to be no satisfactory proof in the absence of all other evidence that the sleeper or sleepers have committed burglary accompanied with violence, and have therefore rendered themselves liable to the punishment of death. Messrs. Blathers and Duff came back again, as wise as they went. In short, after some more examination and a great deal more conversation, a neighbouring magistrate was readily induced to take the joint bail of Mrs. Maylie and Mr. Losburn for Oliver's appearance if he should ever be called upon, and Blathers and Duff, being rewarded with a couple of guineas, returned to town with divided opinions on the subject of their expedition, the latter gentleman, on mature consideration of all the circumstances, inclining to the belief that the burglarious attempts had originated with the family pet, and the former being equally disposed to concede the full merit of it to the great Mr. Conky Chickweed. Meanwhile, Oliver gradually throve and prospered under the united care of Mrs. Maylie, Rose, and the kind-hearted Mr. Losburn. If fervent prayers gushing from hearts overcharged with gratitude be heard in heaven, and if they be not what prayers are, the blessings which the orphan child called down upon them sunk into their souls, diffusing peace and happiness.
End of chapter 31chapter 32 of oliver twist by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tige hines of the happy life oliver began to lead with his kind friends oliver's ailings were neither slight nor few in addition to the pain and delay attendant on a broken limb his exposure to the wet and cold had brought on fever and ague which hung about him for many weeks, and reduced him sadly. But at length he began by slow degrees to get better, and to be able to say sometimes in a few tearful words how deeply he felt the goodness of the two sweet ladies, and how ardently he hoped that when he grew strong and well again he could do something to show his gratitude, only something which would let them see the love and duty with which his breast was full, something, however slight, which would prove to them that their gentle kindness had not been cast away, but that the poor boy whom their charity had rescued from misery or death was eager to serve them with his whole heart and soul. "'Poor fellow,' said Rose, when Oliver had been one day feebly endeavouring to utter the words of thankfulness that rose to his pale lips, "'you shall have many opportunities of serving us, if you will. We are going to the country, and my aunt intends that you shall accompany us.' The quiet place, the pure air, and all the pleasure and beauties of spring will restore you in a few days. We will employ you in a hundred ways when you can bear the trouble." "'The trouble!' cried Oliver. "'Oh, dear lady, if I could but work for you, if I could only give you pleasure by watering your flowers, or watching your birds, or running up and down the whole day long to make you happy, what would I give to do it?' "'You shall give nothing at all,' said Mrs. Maylie, smiling. For, as I told you before, we shall employ you in a hundred ways, and if you only take half the trouble to please us that you promise now, you will make me very happy indeed." "'Happy, ma'am,' cried Oliver. "'Oh, how kind of you to say so!' "'You will make me happier than I can tell you,' replied the young lady. "'To think that my dear good aunt should have been the means of rescuing any one from such misery as you have described to us would be an unspeakable pleasure to me.' but to know that the object of her goodness and compassion was sincerely grateful and attached in consequence would delight me more than you can well imagine. Do you understand me? she inquired, watching Oliver's thoughtful face. Oh, yes, ma'am, yes, replied Oliver eagerly. But I was thinking that I am ungrateful now. To whom? inquired the young lady. To the kind gentleman and the dear old nurse who took so much care of me before, rejoined Oliver. If they knew how happy I am, they would be pleased, I am sure." "'I am sure they would,' rejoined Oliver's benefactress. And Mr. Losburn has already been kind enough to promise that when you are well enough to bear the journey, he will carry you to see them." "'Has he, ma'am?' cried Oliver, his face brightening with pleasure. "'I don't know what I shall do for joy when I see their faces once again.' In a short time Oliver was sufficiently recovered to undergo the fatigue of this expedition. One morning he and Mr. Losburn set out accordingly, in a little carriage which belonged to Mrs. Maylie. When they came to Chertsey Bridge, Oliver turned very pale, and uttered a loud exclamation. "'What's the matter with the boy?' cried the doctor, as usual all in a bustle. "'Do you see anything, hear anything, feel anything, eh?' "'That, sir,' cried Oliver, pointing out of the carriage window, "'that house!' "'Yes, well, what of it? Stop, coachman, pull up here,' cried the doctor. What of the house, my man, eh?" "'The thieves! The house they took me to!' whispered Oliver. "'The devil it is!' 
cried the doctor. "'Hello there, let me out!' But before the coachman could dismount from his box, he had tumbled out of the coach by some means or other, and running down to the deserted tenement began kicking at the door like a madman. "'Hello!' said a little ugly humpbacked man, opening the door so suddenly that the doctor, from the very impetus of his last kick, nearly fell forward into the passage. "'What's the matter you?' "'Matter!' exclaimed the other, collaring him without a moment's reflection. "'A good deal. Robbery is the matter.' "'There'll be murder the matter, too,' replied the humpbacked man, coolly. "'If you don't take your hands off, do you hear me?' "'I hear you,' said the doctor, giving his captive a hearty shake. "'Where's—' confound the fellow, what's his rascally name? "'Sykes, that's it. Where's Sykes, you thief?' The humpbacked man stared, as if in excess of amazement and indignation, and twisting himself dexterously from the doctor's grasp, growled forth a volley of horrid oaths, and retired to the house. Before he could shut the door, however, the doctor had passed into the parlour without a word of parley. He looked anxiously round. Not an article of furniture, not a vestige of anything, animate or inanimate, not even the position of the cupboards, answered to Oliver's description. "'Now,' said the humpbacked man, who had watched him keenly, "'what do you mean by coming into my house in this violent way? Do you want to rob me or to murder me? Which is it? Did you ever know a man come out to do either in a chariot and pair, you ridiculous old vampire?' said the irritable doctor. "'What do you want, then?' demanded the hunchback. "'Will you take yourself off before I do you a mischief, curse you?' "'As soon as I think proper,' said Mr. Losburn, looking into the other parlour, which, like the first, bore no resemblance whatever to Oliver's account of it. "'I shall find you out some day, my friend.' "'Will you?' sneered the ill-favoured cripple. "'If you ever want me on me, I haven't lived here mad and all alone for five and twenty years to be scared by you.' You shall pay for this, you shall pay for this. And so saying, the misshapen little demon set up a yell and danced upon the ground as if wild with rage. Stupid enough, this, muttered the doctor to himself. The boy must have made a mistake. Here, put that in your pocket and shut yourself up again. With these words, he flung the hunchback a piece of money and returned to the carriage. The man followed to the chariot door, uttering the wildest implications and curses all the way. But as Mr. Losburn turned to speak to the driver, he looked into the carriage and eyed Oliver for an instant with a glance so sharp and fierce, and at the same time so furious and vindictive, that waking or sleeping he could not forget it for months afterwards. He continued to utter the most fearful implications until the driver had resumed his seat, and when they were once more on the way they could see him some distance behind beating his feet upon the ground and tearing his hair in transports of real or pretended rage. "'I am an ass,' said the doctor after a long silence. "'Did you know that before, Oliver?' "'No, sir.' "'Then don't forget it another time.' "'An ass,' said the doctor again, after a further silence of some minutes. "'Even if it had been the right place and the right fellows had been there, what could I have done single-handed? And if I had had assistance, I see no good that I should have done, except leading to my own exposure, and an unavoidable statement of the manner in which I have hushed up this business. That would have served me right, though. I am always involving myself in some scrape or other by acting on impulse. It might have done me good. Now the fact was that the excellent doctor had never acted upon anything but impulse all through his life and it was no bad compliment to the nature of the impulses which governed him that so far from being involved in any peculiar troubles or misfortunes he had the warmest respect and esteem of all who knew him. 
if the truth must be told, he was a little out of temper for a minute or two at being disappointed in procuring corroborative evidence of Oliver's story on the very first occasion on which he had a chance of obtaining any. He soon came round again, however, and finding that Oliver's replies to his questions were still as straightforward and consistent, and still delivered with as much apparent sincerity and truth as they had ever been, he made up his mind to attach full credence to them from that time forth. As Oliver knew the name of the street in which Mr. Brownlow resided, they were enabled to drive straight thither. When the coach turned into it his heart beat so violently that he could scarcely draw his breath. "'Now, my boy, which house is it?' inquired Mr. Losburn. "'That, that,' replied Oliver, pointing eagerly out of the window. "'The White House. Oh, make haste, pray make haste. I feel as if I should die. It makes me tremble so.' come come said the good doctor patting him on the shoulder you will see them directly and they will be overjoyed to find you safe and well oh i hope so cried oliver they were so good to me so very good to me the coach rolled on it stopped no that was the wrong house the next door it went on a few paces and stopped again oliver looked up at the windows with tears of happy expectation coursing down his face Alas, the white house was empty, and there was a bill in the window. To let. "'Knock at the next door,' cried Mr. Losburn, taking Oliver's arm in his. "'What has become of Mr. Brownlow, who used to live in the adjoining house? Do you know?' The servant did not know, but would go to inquire. She presently returned and said that Mr. Brownlow had sold off his goods and gone to the West Indies six weeks before. Oliver clasped his hands and sank feebly backwards. "'Has his housekeeper gone too?' inquired Mr. Losburn, after a moment's pause. "'Yes, sir,' replied the servant. "'The old gentleman, the housekeeper, and a gentleman who is a friend of Mr. Brownlow's all went together.' "'Then turn us home again,' said Mr. Losburn to the driver, "'and don't stop to bait the horses till you get out of this confounded London.' "'The bookstall-keeper, sir,' said Oliver. "'I know the way there. See him, sir, pray. Do see him.' "'My poor boy.' "'This is disappointment enough for one day,' said the doctor. "'Quite enough for both of us. "'If we go to the bookstall-keepers, "'we shall certainly find that he is dead "'or he has set his house on fire or run away. "'No, home again straight.' "'And in obedience to the doctor's impulse, "'home they went.' "'This bitter disappointment caused Oliver "'so much sorrow and grief, "'even in the midst of his happiness, "'for he had pleased himself many times during his illness.' with thinking of all that Mr. Brownlow and Mrs. Bedwin would say to him, and what delight it would be to tell them how many long days and nights he had passed in reflecting on what they had done for him, and in bewailing his cruel separation from them. The hope of eventually clearing himself with them too, and explaining how he had been forced away, had buoyed him up and sustained him under many of his recent trials and now the idea that they should have gone so far, and carried with him the belief that he was an impostor and a robber, a belief which might remain uncontradicted to his dying day, was almost more than he could bear. The circumstance occasioned no alteration, however, in the behaviour of his benefactors. After another fortnight, when the fine warm weather had fairly begun, and every tree and flower was putting forth its young leaves and rich blossoms, they made preparations for quitting the house at Chertsey for some months. Sending the plate which had so excited Fagin's cupidity to the bankers, and leaving Giles and another servant in care of the house, they departed to a cottage at some distance in the country, and took Oliver with them. 
who can describe the pleasure and delight the peace of mind and soft tranquillity the sickly boy felt in the balmy air and among the green hills and rich woods of an inland village who can tell how scenes of peace and quietude sink into the minds of pain-worn dwellers in close and noisy places and carry their own freshness deep into their jaded hearts men who have lived in crowded pent-up streets through lives of toil and who have never wished for change men to whom custom has indeed been second nature and who would have come almost to love each brick and stone that formed the narrow boundaries of their daily walks even they with the hand of death upon them have been known to yearn at last for one short glimpse of nature's face and carried far from the scenes of their old pains and pleasures have seemed to pass at once into a new state of being crawling forth from day to day to some green sunny spot they have had such memories wakened up in them by the sight of the sky and hill and plain and glistening water that a foretaste of heaven itself had soothed their quick decline and they have sunk into their tombs as peacefully as the sun whose setting they watched from their lonely chamber window but a few hours before faded from their dim and feeble sight the memories which peaceful country scenes call up are not of this world nor of its thoughts and hopes their gentle influence may teach us how to weave fresh garlands for the graves of those we loved may purify our thoughts and bear down before it old enmity and hatred but beneath all this there lingers in the least reflective mind a vague and half-formed consciousness of having held such feelings long before in some remote and distant time which calls up solemn thoughts of distant times to come and bends down pride and worldliness beneath it it was a lovely spot to which they repaired oliver whose days had been spent among squalid crowds and in the midst of noise and brawling seemed to enter on a new existence there the rose and honeysuckle clung to the cottage walls the ivy crept round the trunks of the trees and the garden flowers perfumed the air with delicious odours hard by was a little churchyard not crowded with tall unsightly gravestones but full of humble mounds covered with fresh turf and moss beneath which the old people of the village lay at rest oliver had wandered here and thinking of the wretched grave in which his mother lay would sometimes sit him down and sob unseen but when he raised his eyes to the deep sky overhead he would cease to think of her as lying in the ground and would weep for her sadly but without pain it was a happy time the days were peaceful and serene the nights brought with them neither fear nor care no languishing in a wretched prison or associating with wretched men nothing but pleasant and happy thoughts every morning he went to a white-haired old gentleman who lived near the little church who taught him to read better and to write and who spoke so kindly and took such pains that oliver could never try enough to please him then he would walk with mrs maylie and rose and hear them talk of books or perhaps sit near them in some shady place and listen while the young lady read which he could have done until it grew too dark to see the letters then he had his own lesson for the next day to prepare and at this he would work hard in a little room which looked into the garden till evening came slowly on when the ladies would walk out again and he with them listening with much pleasure to all they said and so happy if they wanted a flower that he could climb to reach or had forgotten anything he could run to fetch that he could never be quick enough about it 
when it became quite dark and they returned home the young lady would sit down to the piano and play some pleasant air or sing in a low and gentle voice some old song which it pleased her aunt to hear there would be no candles lighted at such times as these and oliver would sit by one of the windows listening to the sweet music in a perfect rapture and when sunday came how different the day was spent from any way in which he had ever spent it yet and how happily too like all the other days in that most happy time there was a little church in the morning with the green leaves fluttering at the windows the birds singing without and the sweet-smelling air stealing in at the low porch and filling the homely building with its fragrance the poor people were so neat and clean and knelt so reverently in prayer that it seemed a pleasure not a tedious duty their assembling there together and though the singing might be rude it was real and sounded more musical to oliver's ears at least than any he had ever heard in church before then there were the walks as usual and many calls at the clean houses of the labouring men and at night oliver read a chapter or two from the bible which he had been studying all the week and in the performance of which duty he felt more proud and pleased than if he had been the clergyman himself in the morning oliver would be afoot by six o'clock roaming the fields and plundering the hedges far and wide for nosegays of wild flowers with which he would return laden home and which it took great care and consideration to arrange to the best advantage for the embellishment of the breakfast-table there was fresh groundsel too for miss maylie's birds with which oliver who had been studying the subject under the able tuition of the village clerk would decorate the cages in the most approved taste when the birds were all made spruce and smart for the day there was usually some little commission of charity to execute in the village or failing that there was rare cricket-playing sometimes on the green or failing that there was always something to do in the garden or about the plants to which oliver who had studied this science also under the same master who was a gardener by trade applied himself with hearty good will until miss rose made her appearance when there were a thousand commendations to be bestowed on all he had done so three months glided away three months which in the life of the most blessed and favoured of mortals might have been unmingled happiness and which in oliver's were true felicity with the purest and most amiable generosity on one side and the truest warmest soul-felt gratitude on the other it is no wonder that by the end of that short time oliver twist had become completely domesticated with the old lady and her niece and that the fervent attachment of his young and sensitive heart was repaid by their pride in and attachment to himself End of chapter thirty two Chapter thirty three of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Wherein the happiness of Oliver and his friends experiences a sudden check. Spring flew swiftly by, and summer came. If the village had been beautiful at first, it was now in the full glow and luxuriance of its richness. The great trees, which had looked shrunken and bare in the earlier months, had now burst into strong life and health, and stretching forth their green arms over the thirsty ground converted open and naked spots into choice nooks, where was a deep and pleasant shade from which to look upon the wide prospect, steeped in sunshine, which lay stretched beyond. The earth had donned her mantle of brightest green, and shed her richest perfumes abroad, 
it was the prime and vigour of the year all things were glad and flourishing still the same quiet life went on at the little cottage and the same cheerful serenity prevailed among its inmates oliver had long since grown stout and healthy but health or sickness made no difference in his warm feelings to those about him though they do in the feelings of a great many people he was still the same gentle attached affectionate creature that he had been when pain and suffering had wasted his strength and when he was dependent for every slight attention and comfort on those who tended him one beautiful night when they had taken a longer walk than was customary with them for the day had been unusually warm and there was a brilliant moon and a light wind had sprung up which was unusually refreshing rose had been in high spirits too when they had walked on in merry conversation until they had far exceeded their ordinary bounds mrs maylie being fatigued they returned more slowly home the young lady merely throwing off her simple bonnet sat down to the piano as usual after running abstractedly over the keys for a few minutes she fell into a low and very solemn air and as she played it they heard a sound as if she were weeping rose my dear said the elder lady rose made no reply but played a little quicker as if the words had roused her from some painful thoughts rose my love cried mrs maylie rising hastily and bending over her what is this in tears my dear child what distresses you nothing aunt nothing replied the young lady i don't know what it is i can't describe it but i feel not ill my love interposed mrs maylie no no oh not ill replied rose shuddering as though some deadly chillness were passing over her while she spoke i shall be better presently close the window pray oliver hastened to comply with her request the young lady making an effort to recover her cheerfulness strove to play some livelier tune but her fingers dropped powerlessly over the keys covering her face with her hand she sank upon a sofa and gave vent to the tears which she was now unable to repress my child said the elderly lady folding her arms about her i have never saw you so before i would not alarm you if i could avoid it rejoined rose but indeed i have tried very hard and cannot help this i fear i am ill aunt she was indeed for when candles were brought they saw that in the very short time which had elapsed since their return home the hue of her countenance had changed to a marble whiteness its expression had lost nothing of its beauty but it was changed and there was an anxious haggard look about the gentle face which it had never worn before another minute and it was suffused with a crimson flush and a heavy wildness came over the soft blue eye again this disappeared like the shadow thrown by a passing cloud and she was once more deadly pale oliver who watched the old lady anxiously observed that she was alarmed by these appearances and so in truth was he but seeing that she affected to make light of them he endeavoured to do the same and they so far succeeded that when rose was persuaded by her aunt to retire for the night she was in better spirits and appeared even in better health assuring them that she felt certain she would rise in the morning quite well i hope said oliver when mrs maylie returned that nothing is the matter she don't look so well to-night but the old lady motioned him not to speak and sitting herself down in a dark corner of the room remained silent for some time at length she said in a trembling voice i hope not oliver i have been very happy with her for some years too happy perhaps it may be time that i should meet with some misfortune but i hope it is not this what inquired oliver 
the heavy blow said the old lady of losing the dear girl who has been so long my comfort and happiness oh god forbid exclaimed oliver hastily amen to that my child said the old lady wringing her hands surely there is no danger of anything so dreadful said oliver two hours ago she was quite well she is very ill now rejoined mrs maylie and will be worse i am sure my dear dear rose oh what shall i do without her she gave way to such great grief that oliver suppressing his own emotion ventured to remonstrate with her and to beg earnestly that for the sake of the dear young lady herself she would be more calm and consider ma'am said oliver as the tears forced themselves into his eyes despite of his efforts to the contrary oh consider how young and good she is and what pleasure and comfort she gives to all about her i am sure certain quite certain that for your sake who are so good yourself and for her own and for the sake of all she makes so happy she will not die heaven will never let her die so young hush said mrs maylie laying her hand on oliver's head you think like a child poor boy but you teach me my duty notwithstanding i had quite forgotten it for a moment oliver but i hope i may be pardoned for i am old and have seen enough of illness and death to know the agony of separation from the objects of our love i have seen enough too to know that it is not always the youngest and best who are spared to those that love them but this should give us comfort in our sorrow for heaven is just and such things teach us impressively that there is a brighter world than this and that the passage to it is speedy god's will be done my lover and he knows how well oliver was surprised to see that as mrs maylie said these words she checked her lamentations as though by one effort and drawing herself up as she spoke became composed and firm he was still more astonished to find that this firmness lasted and that under all the care and watching which ensued mrs maylie was ever ready and collected performing all the duties which had devolved upon her steadily and to all external appearances even cheerfully but he was young and did not know what strong minds are capable of under trying circumstances how should he when their possessors so seldom know themselves an anxious night ensued when morning came mrs maylie's predictions were but too well verified rose was in the first stage of a high and dangerous fever we must be active oliver and not give way to useless grief said mrs maylie laying her finger on her lip as she looked steadily into his face this letter must be sent with all possible expedition to mr losburn it must be carried to the market-town which is not more than four miles off by the footpath across the field and thence dispatched by an express on horseback straight to chertsey the people at the inn will undertake to do this and i can trust you to see it done i know oliver could make no reply but looked his anxiety to be gone at once here is another letter said mrs maylie pausing to reflect but whether to send it now or wait until i see how rose goes on i scarcely know i would not forward it unless i fear the worst is it for chertsey too ma'am inquired oliver impatient to execute his commission and holding out his trembling hand for the letter no replied the old lady giving it to him mechanically oliver glanced at it and saw that it was directed to harry maylie esq at some great lord's house in the country where he could not make out shall it go ma'am asked oliver looking up impatiently i think not replied mrs maylie taking it back i will wait until to-morrow with these words she gave oliver her purse and he started off without more delay at the greatest speed he could muster 
Swiftly he ran across the fields and down the little lanes which sometimes divided them, now almost hidden by the high corn on either side, and now emerging on an open field where the mowers and haymakers were busily at their work. Nor did he stop once, save now and then for a few seconds to recover breath, until he came, in a great heat and covered with dust, on the little market-place of the market-town. He paused and looked about for the inn. There were a white bank and a red brewery and a yellow town hall, and in one corner was a large house with all the wood about it painted green, before which was the sign of the George. To this he hastened as soon as it caught his eye. He spoke to a postboy who was dozing under a gateway, and who, after hearing what he wanted, referred him to the ostler, who, after hearing all he had to say again, referred him to the landlord, who was a tall gentleman in a blue neckcloth, a white hat, drab breeches, and boots with tops to match. He leaned against a pump by the stable door, picking his teeth with a silver toothpick. This gentleman walked with much deliberation into the bar to make out the bill, which took a long time in making out, and after it was ready and paid a horse had to be saddled and a man to be dressed, which took up ten good minutes more. Meanwhile Oliver was in such a desperate state of impatience and anxiety that he felt as if he could have jumped upon the horse himself and galloped away full tear to the next stage. At length all was ready, and the little parcel having been handed up, with many injunctions and entreaties for its speedy delivery, the man set spurs to his horse and, rattling over the uneven paving of the market-place, was out of the town and galloping along the turnpike road in a couple of minutes. As it was something to feel certain that assistance was sent for, and that no time had been lost, Oliver hurried up the inn-yard, with a somewhat lighter heart. He was turning out of the gateway when he accidentally stumbled against a tall man wrapped in a cloak, who was at that moment coming out of the inn-door. "'Ha!' cried the man, fixing his eyes on Oliver, and suddenly recoiling. "'What the devil is this?' "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said Oliver. "'I was in a great hurry to get home, and didn't see you were coming.' "'Death!' muttered the man to himself, glaring at the boy with his large, dark eyes. "'Who could have thought it? Grind him to ashes, he'd start up from the stone coffin to come in my way.' "'I am sorry,' stammered Oliver, confused by the strange man's wild look. "'I hope I have not hurt you.' "'Rot you!' murmured the man, in a horrible passion between his clenched teeth. "'If I had only the courage to say the word, I might have been free from you in a night. Curses on your head, and black death on your heart, you imp!' What are you doing here?" The man shook his fist as he uttered these words incoherently. He advanced towards Oliver, as if with the intention of aiming a blow at him, but fell violently on the ground, writhing and foaming in a fit. Oliver gazed for a moment at the struggles of the madman, for such he supposed him to be, and then darted off into the house for help. Having seen him safely carried into the hotel, he turned his face homewards, running as fast as he could to make up for lost time and recalling with a great deal of astonishment and some fear the extraordinary behaviour of the person from whom he had just parted. The circumstance did not dwell on his recollection long, however, for when he reached the cottage there was enough to occupy his mind and to drive all considerations of self completely from his memory. Rose Maylie had rapidly grown worse. Before midnight she was delirious. A medical practitioner who resided on the spot was in constant attendance upon her and after first seeing the patient he had taken Mrs. Maylie aside and pronounced her disorder to be one of a most alarming nature. "'In fact,' he said, "'it would be little short of a miracle if she recovered.' 
how often did oliver start from his bed that night and stealing out with noiseless footstep to the staircase listen for the slightest sound from the sick chamber how often did a tremble shake his frame and cold drops of terror start upon his brow when a sudden trampling of feet caused him to fear that something too dreadful to think of had even then occurred and what had been the fervency of all the prayers he had ever muttered compared with those he poured forth now in the agony and passion of a supplication for the life and health of the gentle creature who was tottering on the deep grave's verge oh the suspense the fearful acute suspense of standing idly by while the life of one we dearly love is trembling in the balance oh the racking thoughts that crowd upon the mind and make the heart beat violently and the breath come thick by the force of the images they conjure up before it the desperate anxiety to be doing something to relieve the pain or lessen the danger which we have no power to alleviate the sinking of soul and spirit which the sad remembrance of our helplessness produces what tortures can equal these what reflections or endeavours can in the full tide and fever of the time allay them morning came and the little cottage was lonely and still people spoke in whispers anxious faces appeared at the gate from time to time women and children went away in tears all the livelong day and for hours after it had grown dark oliver paced softly up and down the garden raising his eyes every instant to the sick chamber and shuddering to see the darkened window looking as if death lay stretched inside late that night mr losburn arrived it is hard said the good doctor turning away as he spoke so young so much beloved but there is very little hope another morning the sun shone brightly as brightly as if it looked upon no misery or care and with every leaf and flower in full bloom about her with life and health and sounds and sights of joy surrounding her on every side the fair young creature lay wasting fast oliver crept away to the old churchyard and sitting down on one of the green mounds wept and prayed for her in silence there was such peace and beauty in the scene so much of brightness and mirth in the sunny landscape such blithesome music in the songs of the summer birds such freedom in the rapid flight of the rook careering overhead so much of life and joyousness in all that when the boy raised his aching eyes and looked about the thought instinctively occurred to him that this was not the time for death that rose could surely never die when humbler things were all so glad and gay that graves were for cold and cheerless winter not for sunlight and fragrance he almost thought that shrouds were for the old and shrunken and that they never wrapped the young and graceful form in their ghastly folds a knell from the church bell broke harshly on these youthful thoughts another again it was tolling for the funeral service a group of humble mourners entered the gate wearing white favours for the corpse was young they stood uncovered by a grave and there was a mother a mother once among the weeping train but the sun shone brightly and the birds sang on oliver turned homeward thinking on the many kindnesses he had received from the young lady and wishing that the time might come again that he might never cease showing her how grateful and attached he was he had no cause for self-reproach on the score of neglect or want of thought for he had been devoted to her service and yet a hundred little occasions rose up before him on which he fancied he might have been more zealous and more earnest and wished he had been we need be careful how we deal with those about us 
when every death carries to some small circle of survivors thoughts of so much omitted and so little done of so many things forgotten and so many more which might have been repaired there is no remorse so deep as that which is unavailing if we could be spared its tortures let us remember this in time when he reached home mrs maylie was sitting in the little parlour oliver's heart sank at the sight of her for she had never left the bedside of her niece and he trembled to think what change could have driven her away he learnt that she had fallen into a deep sleep from which she would waken neither to recovery and life or to bid them farewell and die they sat listening and afraid to speak for hours the untasted meal was removed with looks which showed that their thoughts were elsewhere they watched the sun as he sank lower and lower and at length cast over sky and earth those brilliant hues which herald its departure their quick ears caught the sound of an approaching footstep they both involuntarily darted to the door as mr losburn entered what of rose cried the old lady tell me at once i can bear it anything but suspense oh tell me in the name of heaven you must compose yourself said the doctor supporting her be calm my dear ma'am pray oh, let me go in god's name my dear child she is dead she is dying no cried the doctor passionately as he is good and merciful she will live to bless us all for years to come the lady fell upon her knees and tried to fold her hands together but the energy which had supported her so long fled up to heaven with her first thanksgiving and she sank into the friendly arms which were extended to receive her End of chapter 33Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc